0: Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean
1: Chapman. This week on the podcast, we have a lot to talk about. Yes, we were going to have a lot to talk about anyways and then all of a sudden every video game company and like movie production company decided let's put out some news in this week as well. Yeah. So, so yes, there's a huge outline we have today. Huge outline, including more chat on Persona
0: 5. Yes. You already know we love it. We're just breaking down the story as we play through it. Sean and I are both at about the same point, which is around the halfway uh, point of the game, around 50 hours. Yeah. um, Late August through the third and fourth arcs of the game. And that is where we're going to cut off for spoilers. So we've got lots and lots to break down there. Yep. We're going to talk about this week's Doctor Who The Pilot, which is the premiere of Series 10. (laughs) It has a very cheeky title. Yes. So we finally get to talk about more Doctor Who. Quick spoiler-free reaction, Sean. What do you think of the episode?
1: I thought it was really good. Like, like it definitely. There are. I wish that it was one of the Doctor Who episodes that they gave a bit extra runtime to, which they've done here and there because it felt a bit stuffed in places. But when you take into account that it's, you know, it has to introduce whatever the season arc thing is going to be with like this mysterious door that the Doctor is dealing with, and it has to introduce uh, Bill, our new companion. It's, you know, and and also just has to re-sort of bring the Doctor back into our lives because the show's been off for about a year. Like, I thought with all that on its plate, the episode was really good, did a great job at introducing Bill, and also just had a really fun, very ex filesy kind of monster half of the show that I thought was very tense and and interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I I liked it a lot.
0: I liked it a lot. I thought it was a potentially great, like, 70-minute episode, stuffed Violently Into a very good 45 minute episode Yeah So and I think that's the biggest problem with it But I love Bill I still love Nardole Yeah Peter Capaldi Jesus Christ man uh, we got a lot of stuff to talk about with that Yeah It's going to be good Alright so that's Doctor Who Glad we've got 12 more weeks of that to talk about And uh, then we're going to talk about a bunch of news From movie trailers To game announcements To other announcements To Nintendo being Nintendo. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so we've got a lot on the docket today and I want to start with a quick couple pieces of stuff. Okay. I went to see a movie today. Okay, yes. It is Easter so I got together with my brother and we went to celebrate uh, Easter the best way which is to celebrate Jesus Christ's one true resurrection which is Vin Diesel Uh in The Fate of the Furious. Okay, yeah. The new Fast and Furious movie, the 8th. For those keeping track at home, if it is even
1: possible to keep track at this point. I mean, it has it has that sound right in its title, Jonathan. No one could possibly make a mistake there. Indeed. So, Fate of the Furious. Uh, y'all know I love the Fast and Furious
0: movies. They're just a ton of fun. This one is still a ton of fun. It's got some really good stuff in it. I think it's probably my least favorite of the ones I've seen.
1: Oh, and, really? Yeah. Oh, because okay, you haven't seen
0: all of them, right? Well, I haven't seen two and three, which are the spinoffs. Okay, yeah. Those don't quite count because they're like, you know, they don't have Vin Diesel in them. Right. You know, um, but like of one, four, five, six, seven, eight, I thought this was probably my least favorite, but I like all those other movies, so that's not me damning it or anything. I think it's a good movie and a solid time at the movies. This one, like, just to foreground some problems with it, I think... It's got an interesting story in that the whole plot is that Dom, Vin Diesel's character, has to like betray his team because Charlize Theron, who's playing the villain this time, is blackmailing him
1: with something mysterious. And I think you mean he has to betray the family. He has to betray the
0: family, that's true, yeah. I
1: haven't seen any of these movies, but I did see the trailer for Fate of the Furious a couple of times, and they really hammer home the family point a lot.
0: Uh, They do in every single movie, so yes, it's a thing. And so he has to betray his family, and I, I think it's an interesting premise... But I also don't know if it's the right premise for this movie because it takes Vin Diesel out of the team for too much of the film. And it also makes, like, the whole what Charlize Theron's plot is and what she's got on Dom winds up being, I think, a little too dark for this franchise at various points. And some of that's disappointing. And then the other thing is just you do feel Paul Walker's absence in this one because this is the first one they've made since he died. Uh, furious 7 he died during the production of and so but he's in that movie obviously in this one they don't have that character they have to they left that character alive which is awesome i think so he's out there in the world but they do have to do the awkward thing of like should we call brian no brian's out man we can't call brian and that is no one's fault like there is nothing you can do with that but it is just the issue of when you don't have dom's best friend on the team and you don't have dom with the team there's just some moments where i i didn't quite feel like the kind of the great ensemble aspect of it because that emotional connection wasn't quite there for a lot of the movie. Sure. Um, And then I think it's a little too long and I don't think this director, F. Gary Gray, has quite the um, sense for action as the other directors of this series has had. Not that the action is bad. There's some really cool action scenes, including one in New York where they destroy roughly five billion cars or something. You've probably seen that in the ads where they're just bringing these cars raining down from parking garages. That's a very cool image and series of images. But overall, I did not think the action was on par with like either the Justin Lin films or Furious 7, which was directed by James Wan.
1: Who directed this mm-hmm. one?
0: F. Gary Gray. Okay, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um... Which, you know, and I think he did well with a lot of other things in the movie. generally looks nice. It's, it you know, uh, so I think a couple pacing issues. These movies generally have pacing issues. Hollywood movies generally have pacing issues. Let's just go back to that. Sure, yeah. <laughs> But overall, it's fine. Uh, so I didn't think the action was quite on par, but still good. Um, the Paul Walker thing, again, unfortunate, but it's just like, because it's the first movie after him, and they told this story about the family kind of being broken apart, I just felt it more than I think I might otherwise have. But it's got lots of good things about it. It builds to a phenomenal third act. Like some of the other Fast and Furious movies particularly I think Furious 7 and maybe the the fourth one have that kind of third act problem where they kind of peak halfway in and sure. then they kind of drag in the end um, Fast 5 generally avoided that Fast 6 generally avoided that we're back to avoiding that with this one because this one has a phenomenal like it builds really well to a very good, very satisfying third act that has so many great crowd pleasing moments and uses all the individual characters in such fantastic ways. So, whatever issues I think the movie has, and I do think it's rougher around the edges than the other films, you walk out of the theater feeling like, yeah, that was awesome, which, what more can you really ask for? Yeah. Um, it also has the beginning of the movie, like the first 10 minutes are my favorite 10 minutes of the movie. It's got a fantastic opening, which is just Dom and his. Uh, girlfriend, I guess wife now, Letty, played by Michelle Rodriguez, down in Cuba, um, getting into a street race conflict with some, you know, local racing dude, and uh, it's just a really good like 10 minutes, Vin Diesel is awesome in it, and there's some really imaginative uh, things going on in that race, so a lot of good things about the movie, I also liked uh, The Rock is in this one a lot more than he was in the last one, because he wasn't in that one much. But he's back, he kind of takes up the mantle of where I think Brian, the Paul Walker character, would have been. And he is a ton of fun, has a lot of very funny scenes in this. And then they bring back the Jason Statham character, who was the villain of the previous movie, because these movies love the enemies-then-become-friends trope. The, the
1: Vegeta. Oh. I mean, yes. it's not just
0: Vegeta, but I think of Vegeta. I always always think to um, Rocky Three. Sure, yeah. And, yeah. Um, Creed becoming Rocky's friend—it's kind of like that. Although Creed didn't like murder people, but you know, anyway, he was still you know mean to Rocky. But yeah, so Jason Statham becomes part of the team, and he has some great, especially him and The Rock, just have some great interactions, and you know, it's fun. It's I I think one of the things I thought in my mind—I didn't tweet this, but it would have been a good tweet—was it feels like the script of this movie took less time to write than it took to watch the movie. Because there's a lot where you're just like, yeah, they are really just baking shit up at this point and just flying by the seat of their pants. And that's okay. You can pretty much get away with it in these movies. But there is some stuff where it's like... Even by the standards of this series, which obviously is not, like, hyper-realistic or anything, you just kind of roll your eyes at the plot mechanics. Like, this is the third movie in a row where they've had kind of international espionage be kind of the arc of the plot. You know, the early movies were about street racing, and then Fast Five was a heist movie, and then the later ones have been kind of these espionage films. And I think they're maybe running out of gas on that one. I would like to see maybe for the next movie go to do something else with it just some other kind of car based action thing or maybe fast and furious in space sure or like do something where you know maybe you go back to a street racing kind of conceit really the only place they can go with the international espionage thing next is space because this movie is when they finally get to the villain has nuclear bombs and they have to stop them to be fair to this series it took them eight movies in 16 years to get there yeah 24 got there in season two so you know and I this series had further to travel to get there obviously if you look at the first movie too we are stopping world war three
1: but still eight movies that does show a certain degree of restraint I think yeah it is kind of amazing if you look through the other
0: movies that no one has had a nuke before yeah just because these kind of movies love that I I mean have
1: they had a car that is powered by a nuclear reactor because that seems like something these movies would do not yet maybe that's the next step
0: yeah yeah like unstable nuclear reactor um What else was I going to say? I mean, yeah, so there's a lot of fun things about this. Uh, Charlize Theron, I don't know if she's a great villain on the page, especially because I don't think we ever really figure out what she wants out of all of this, other than nukes, which, okay, whatever. Sure. Um, You know, she also wants to, oh, this is the other thing I was going to say, we don't only have nukes, we also have, as though we are Call of Duty, Circa 2007, Russian separatists. Oh, great, yeah, I
1: mean, you know, the Russians,
0: fuck them. Yeah, fuck them. But you don't need to do separatists anymore. You can just yeah. have them be the Russians <laughs> That's now. a good point, yeah. Yeah, we are back to the Russians are pieces of shit. Yeah, it is not the mid-2000s anymore. No, you, they, they don't have to be separatists anymore. But anyway, um, anyway, I was going to say Charlize Theron, not necessarily a great character on the page, but it's Charlize Theron. She's really good at this. She's good in this movie. Good villain. Spoiler, they leave her alive at the end so she can come back if she wants to. So she to. can
1: vegetate. Yeah, this, who knows?
0: She does a lot more unforgivable stuff than the other villains in this franchise. But, hey, if Vegeta taught us anything, you can always Vegeta it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure, like, at some point, Fast and Furious is going to get their own version of the Dragon Balls where they can wish all the people (laughs) that Charlize Theron died, like, killed back to life. So, you know, it's all good.
0: It is like the Jason Statham character, you know, his big thing was he killed Han... The Asian American guy on the team who everyone loves. Right. And he's pretty much become their friend by the end of this movie. And that's great. But I do feel like that should have gone hand in hand with him being like, And hey guys, behind this door, Han's alive! And just like ended the movie on that being like, he's back! You know? Cause this is a fundamentally happy franchise. It's not a right. franchise
1: where everyone's sad at the end of the movie. I didn't kill your best friend, I just ran him over with a magic time car that sent him back into the past, <laughs> where then he had to like cobble together some sort of magic time car in like feudal Japan, and that's gonna be Tokyo Drift 2. Yeah, I mean
0: this is you know, this is not the best Fast and Furious movie. It's also the eighth one. So let's right. all like I've seen some people being like, has it finally lost it? I'm like it's still fun. It's still got good characters, good act. With like, it's got Fast and Furious acting. Yeah. It's got fun action. Like it's also their eighth movie. Kind of a little bit of slack. I don't um, know.
1: Most movie franchises never get anywhere close to eight movies. And most movie franchises that do, like that, is like direct to DVD, like you know, bargain yeah. bin, fucking Best Buy movies. You know, yeah. like, that's that's like a slasher movie kind of number you're at with eight.
0: Absolutely, and and unlike most slasher movie franchises. If you still you know, generally like these movies, you should still be going to them. Because they're still very good versions of what they set out to be. I love Vin Diesel in these movies. I love The Rock in these movies. I love all the characters. I think... It's also just... And it's, it's kind of thrown into stark relief by not having Paul Walker, the main white guy there. That this is a multicultural, multi-ethnic cast made by a multicultural, multi-ethnic you know, crew. And that is still rare for Hollywood. Yeah. As evidenced by things like Ghost in the Shell or something you know that this is a franchise that is huge and makes all this money and has you know black and latino and latina actors and that's just a nice thing it's something you don't see a lot and it is absolutely part of this franchise's success that it looks like america you know and i still i I like that i think it's a valuable thing that you know if we can give a pass for all these silly white person franchises that are just kind of dumb fun we can do it for this one too guys it's good and it's yeah. better than a lot of those So I like this I also wanted to really quickly report on the box office numbers for this movie Because they're fascinating Okay, If you only saw what it did domestically You might think this movie is a minor disappointment Because it did $100 million for the weekend Which is good, Furious 7 did $150 million, okay, So that's yeah. something of a depreciation Worldwide however This movie set the all time worldwide opening record And took it from none other than Star Wars The Force Awakens Sure, that makes that's, sense That's how big this franchise is it made 533 million worldwide and 190 million of that was in china alone Chi- i don't think this has ever happened china nearly doubled the american box office of a hollywood film in the same 3-day period
1: man that is nuts like and now you get why all like every hollywood studio is trying to like get that chinese box office they're
0: going to china next yeah. time they're bringing back han they're going to china it's going to sure, be great. yeah, yeah. Because Americans don't really know where
1: different Asian people come from. They just need one on the no, team. It's a fast and, and then, the furious China drift. Yeah. China. Or I guess it would be like Hong Kong drift, I guess, if we're going with cities yeah (laughs) although then you get to do
0: is that china is that an offshoot yeah yeah do you do beijing drift to make the the mainland feel
1: good i don't know maybe you do two versions yeah the international politics getting mixed up into the hollywood filmmaking is something that we all get to look forward to in the future it's a very real thing but no i mean it would honestly
0: be surprising with numbers like that if they don't go to china at some point but yeah it's uh that also to me is interesting because you keep seeing this thing of like we have to whitewash the cast of our anime movie because otherwise no one will see it yeah. And yet all the whitewashed movies, every single one of them flops out of the gate like Ghost in the Shell did. And yet the multicultural movie with all these, you know, cool actors of different colors, does $190 million in
1: China. You just can't make that argument anymore. I'm know? just looking forward to like Michelle Rodriguez leaves the series and they just replace her with a like Chinese pop star. <laughs> this like this nineteen year old pop star lady that's like, here we go. <laughs> that would be interesting. I mean the yeah. team is always expanding. They can get more people. Sure. Yeah. They can go to China and like meet... But I'm I, just thinking you need Vin Diesel to have a new love interest okay. and it, it has to be a 19-year-old Chinese pop star. All right. Okay. That is my that is my dream story for, five, for, for I mean, Fast and Furious number nine. I, you know, I think it would be even
0: funnier with The Rock. That character is canonically single in the movies. Okay. That would be even... Because he's there also enormous. Yeah. That is something that uh, F. Gary Gray does very well directorially on this one is shooting... The Rock's just raw size Like there's this prison riot scene Where The Rock is in prison for convoluted reasons And he's getting out And you know The Rock is the size he is That's not CGI He really does look like the Hulk yeah. You know you could put him in green paint And he'd look better than the CGI Hulk Yeah because... you'd, you'd like Lou know that shit yeah. back, Like the, the old TV show <laughs> And it would look completely convincing But like just the way he's moving through people And obviously it's stunts and special effects But you can only sell it because The Rock is the fucking size he is. And it's nuts. It's like he gets more
1: ripped with every passing year. And I don't quite know how that works with like the laws of physics and time. It's like, it's especially really weird if you ever see any like stuff of when he was still a professional wrestler and he looks like a baby compared to the way that he looks now and it's like, how the fuck does that work out? How does the dude who's literally like his, like half of his fucking job is like lifting people up and throwing them. How does he look tiny compared to the dude who's like the giant international movie star that like, you know, makes like hundreds of billions of dollars every movie he's in yeah like how how the fuck does that work i have no idea it's it's very strange
0: but god bless him so good good movie good fun at the movies and uh man that's a lot of money yeah which is just fascinating these days because and here's the thing that kind of record i think is becoming more and more important because Hollywood doesn't so much care About the domestic numbers They're nice But that's not where the Near the majority Of their money's coming from Yeah because
1: it turns out The most of the world Is not just America As Even as surprising As that may be To people who have Always lived in America There's like so There are a lot of people That are not in America Actually Yes So just kind of Fascinating to me one other thing on my stuff list I want
0: to talk about, okay. um, because some TV came back this week, uh, D- Doctor Who, of course, which yes. is awesome, but also Better Call Saul, which I love, uh, great premiere, not going to go into that because you don't watch it, but it was very good. Um, and so I needed a way to watch this TV, though, because I don't have a cable package at the moment. Right. <clears throat> so I, I mean, was looking who does? Into, yeah, I was looking into different options. Also, cable packages are ludicrously expensive. And so I was looking into different options, and PlayStation, which you and I both use, has that PlayStation View thing. Yeah. And I never really looked into it, but I decided to get, like, the five-day trial, because Better Call Saul was going to be on that night. And I could try it out, and then if I liked it, I could pay for it. And I've paid for it for at least the first month, because I like it so far. And it's pretty cool, because I just want to talk about this for a minute, because I was very confused by these, like, streaming... Not, like, Netflix,
1: but these kind of streaming apps that are, like, channel-based. Yeah, they're, like, tied into the whole, like, weird politics and economy of like cable channels and all that stuff
0: right but unfortunately that's still the only way you can see some shows you know unless you buy like an itunes season pass which costs a lot for Mm -hmm. one show and you know i've got on this month alone i want to watch better call Saul, doctor who fargo Mm Uh, the Leftovers on HBO, you know, other things just on different channels. So I've got a lot I've been trying to watch. So I thought this would be a good month to try that out. And I like PlayStation View. I think there's other versions of this, like Sling TV is one. I forget what the others are called. But basically it's like having a cable or satellite package, but through the internet, not through cable or satellite. And it's, it's much cheaper in comparison. Like I got the basic package, which has all the channels I wanted, you know, AMC, FX, all of that stuff. And it was, it's $30 a month which is a lot compared to, like, a Netflix or something. Yeah. But compared to, like, the the comparable cable package on, like, DirecTV, which we used to have, would be, like, $75. And that doesn't include all the other DirecTV fees. Right. So it's kind of nice. And what it does is you've got those channels. It's kind of like a normal cable thing where you pick your channel and you just watch it live just over the Internet instead of over cable. Otherwise, it's the same kind of idea. You can mark shows and there is a cloud DVR. And because it's cloud-based, it's a lot more space. It'll just record basically everything from that show... And thirty days later, it'll delete it. But in that time, you've got all of it. So, like, yeah. I have all of seasons eight and nine of Doctor Who because BBC America really likes to marathon that shit. You yeah, know,
1: it's BBC America. They yeah. they have
0: limited options in what's popular over here. <laughs> very true.
1: Doctor Who's kind of at the top of their list.
0: It, it's very much at the top of their yeah. list. Yeah, uh, so much so that they waited to debut class until last night. Yeah. Which I have—I've never seen class, so I'm kind of glad I have that on my DVR. Yeah, I only ever saw the first episode, but I liked it. Yeah, I should—I should give it a try, Um, especially because it's right after Doctor Who. It would be kind of fun to double feature those for a while. But um, yeah, I I like it. Like, it's very easy to use. You got your channels. The DVR thing is really seamless, and it's even better than like a cable DVR because you don't have to like hold down a really shitty fast-forward button and see if you can time it right, right. You can just take the slider and move it to where you
1: think the end is. It's like, oh, didn't quite get it? Adjust, we're good, you know? Yeah, that's a good... Like, I haven't really thought about it because it's been a while since I used cable, but it always did have that weird... Like, it felt like you were... like, watching this thing through some sort of unknowable magic because it's, like, the responsiveness and the weird just, like, yep. mushiness of trying to watch anything through a cable package on their, like, on-demand service just felt like nobody knows how this thing is working. Like, or it would work better if someone had some idea how this thing was actually functioning.
0: Yeah, because it's actually just a video file on a hard drive, and somehow that's really difficult for people like Comcast and DirecTV.
1: Yeah, it's just a video file on a hard drive, but it in no way feels like you're interacting with a video file on a hard drive. No, but this, I mean, it it works. It's got
0: the channels I liked, you know, and I wanted to have. I wish it had just built-in, like, basic network stuff, like ABC, CW, CBS, that stuff, because that would be, they're not in there. And, of course, you can get those a million different ways. Right. But it just—I think it's a little weird that those aren't part of it. Like NBC and Fox have a presence. You know, you also get all like the cable news channels. If you hate yourself, you can watch those. Or you know, you like specific things on them. Out of sure. the twenty, out of twenty-four hours a day, there's got to be something good on them. There's a good like three, four minutes probably. Yeah, probably. So you know, it's a nice service. Um, Thirty dollars a month, of course, is a big ask. I think given other streaming service costs, but for you know, your of the moment TV live, you can just get it, watch it. And I probably would never have this year-round, just because even for the channels I like, there are going to be down periods where they're not showing you know, the show I watch at that time. Right. It just so happened this was worth it to me, because literally all my favorite shows from the year 2015 were coming back this year, because they all took 2016 off. Yeah. So it was kind of weird, but um, I like it so far. I liked it with Better Call Saul. liked it with Doctor Who, with the caveat that I don't usually watch Doctor Who on BBC America, because they kind of butcher the show. Yeah. I tried it again... I probably won't be doing it that way again. You guys can imagine how we watch it if we're not watching it on BBC America. I like that they put it out there. I wish they would do a better job with it. Because I think where they put commercials and specifically the fact that they cut off the next episode tag and the credits is weird because the episodes are edited to go into that. Yeah. And so, like, you have really abrupt endings and I don't... There's no reason to cut that stuff off. I don't get that, but... Or at least show the preview and then put the credits in a box or something while you show your commercial. Sure, yeah. like, Like everyone else does it. It's very strange the way they do that. But, you know, got to watch the episode. The other thing that's nice about something like PlayStation View is that because it's internet streaming... It looks a lot better than cable or satellite, which I don't know how they call that HD, what comes through cable and satellite, but it looks really shitty. PlayStation View by no means looks great. It's not like a hyper-polished stream or Blu-ray or DVD or something, but it's good. It's a step up. It's clearer. It's not this blurry piece of shit so overall i'm liking it it's an interesting service the best thing to me about it is that it counts as a cable provider and i have fxx on it so i got access to the simpsons world app on fxx which is where they have all 600 some episodes of the simpsons and i've been enjoying the shit out of that and it has taken away at least a little time from persona 5 of oh my god i have all this simpsons to watch
1: which is man, cool. yeah there's a lot
0: they're still making the simpsons right yep it's... i watched i went back and watched the 600th episode which i had not seen and it was pretty good. Like, The Simpsons still makes me laugh. I love it. So, yeah, but so it's a, it's a nice service. Um, again, not sure how long I'll use it, but it's a, it's a good solution if you need certain channels, especially as we're in the middle of the TV apocalypse. So, and the other thing that's nice about it is you can. I saw you can add Showtime for like eight bucks a month.
1: Okay, there you go. And I need that for Twin Peaks. Yes. Luckily, my dad gets Showtime, so I can just watch that with him.
0: Yeah. Showtime lets you add it to a couple of different services. I know Hulu does the same thing, but I don't use Hulu, and even then you would have to pay more than that on top. So it's nice you can just kind of add it as an option. You can do the same thing with HBO and stuff. I have HBO separately, but yeah, so that's good. I will have a way to watch Twin Peaks. Yes. And even though it's PlayStation View, they're very good about they have apps for everything, not just on your PlayStation 4. You can get it on your Apple TV, your iPhone, your iPad, all of that. And it is kind of trippy for me to, like, pick up my iPhone and, like, turn on BBC America and be like... yeah. And my biggest thing about this is, why didn't TV do this five years ago? Or ten years ago, like they just shot that because now it's really too late for this to ever catch on. It's a nice stopgap for those of us who need it, yeah. But that's never probably going to catch on as the main method. It probably could have if someone had realized five ten years ago this hardwiring cable and satellite into people's houses is fucking stupid and going to die. Yeah, let's make something else and everyone and it's just
1: it's too it's like the titanic too big a ship to move away from that iceberg yeah and it's something where because it's like these kinds of services have come in so late it's like the cable services and like those channel providers and everything are forcing it to be way more expensive than it should be yes. because it's like i bet like playstation view would be way more popular if it was more competitive with other streaming services like Netflix and Hulu, even if they are offering things that are kind of different by like yeah. the very nature of what it is, like it needs to be competitive with those kinds of streaming services to be popular on like a broad scale. But because of the crazy fucking politics of cable channel stuff, yeah. it's never going to be able to be cheap.
0: And you know, I don't think it should be ten dollars a month like Netflix, but fifteen to twenty would yeah. be completely reasonable. And I think you're right, it would be so much more popular. And it's just it's all these companies leaving Hand over fist, money on the table, because they can't get out of their own way. Yeah. You
1: know, it's very strange, but whatever. Cable TV, it's it's been a dying thing for years. It yeah. will continue to be a dying I thing. I love
0: that HBO finally just has their standalone $15 a month. It's a little expensive, but you at least just can fucking get HBO. Right. And I use that, you know, I've been actually, one of the shows I've been watching on on that, because it's returning tonight, and I wanted to catch up on it. it, is Veep, which is has a slight Peter Capaldi connection, because okay. it's... It developed out of the American remake of The Thick of It, which is the show Peter Capaldi was most famous for before Doctor Who. Yes. And I love The Thick of It. haven't seen all of it, but God, he's great on that. And Veep is the same creator. And I had always wanted to watch it. It's coming back for its sixth season. I was also super curious. How does this show about Washington politics and satire work in a time when we cannot satirize it? Yeah. It's still a great show. But, um, yeah, so. I've been having fun with TV. I realized I had played maybe too much
1: Persona 5 last week. And kind of melted my brain a little too much.
0: So I've been it was, trying to even it out a
1: little bit. Yeah, like I said last week, I'm pretty sure you played that game more than I did when I first got it. Which, yeah, is, it's, which is startling. The, the the base in that game is like Black Tar Heroin.
0: Once you got it in your veins, you need more and more and more of it. It's true. It's true. Yeah. It's very true. All right, uh, let's go ahead and move on. Unless you have some stuff.
1: Uh, the only other kind of stuff I've been doing in Persona 5 is I have been keeping up with my Romance of the Three Kingdoms show. Still talking about TV <laughs> Sort of a different kind of TV. TV that's like almost 30 years old at this point. That's not on PlayStation for you? No, it's not. But it is really good. Like, I've gotten... Because the last time I talked about it, I think I was still relatively early in the show. And now I've been kind of keeping up to watching about two episodes a night. Because it's just kind of like... Because each episode is like 43 minutes long. So it's a, d- a decent bit of time. But it's not like... All consuming And it just has a really great pace to it I'm about almost kind of halfway through I'm in the Red Cliff battle section Which is sort of one of the most famous parts of the book That's like where the John Woo movie is based on The John Woo movies called Red Cliff Obviously are based off of the Battle of the Red Cliff And so that's just When it starts getting into like The kind of the meat of that story And it gets out of the sort of the opening Section of the book Which is like 200, 300 pages of the first pages of the book Is It's still good stuff But it's sort of... Taking a lot of time to set up obviously like this huge grand sort of scale of how everything is going to operate. And now I'm into the bit where it's like it really is it's the they are not officially sort of three separate kingdoms yet. But the people who make the three different kingdoms are all vying for like power and like. You know, doing all these like weird strategies and pushing against each other in different ways. And it's just every single episode will be, get, we'll get to a part where I'm like, oh, this is like one of my favorite sections of the book. And every time that happens, I get super excited because every single time they get to a part of the book that's one of my favorite parts of the book, they knock that section completely out of the park. And it's like the way that the show is shot and acted and like just directed, the music everything about the production value even if it doesn't have the budget that you would like obviously if you you know like game of thrones or something it's not going to have the production value budget wise or something like that but in terms of the sheer talent that has gone into making it it's really remarkable and there's just
0: man imagine
1: if hbo was smart enough for their game of thrones
0: follow-up to be like romance of the three kingdoms fuck yeah done with like chinese actors so they could get it into the chinese market and everything yeah and so it would be authentic obviously that too yeah that would be cool
1: yeah no but but i mean but you don't need to do it because no, we have this tv show that's it's really because also it has a quality in terms of the pacing and the direction and the acting that very much feels like if it was made in 2017 it would not be made like this because this is not the popular style but luckily i really love that kind of style i really love the slow pacing i love the super theatrical acting style that everyone goes for and it's just it's it's so good. It's just got such a sort of comfortable feeling to it and you just sort of dip in and just admire this insane production. I was like looking up stuff about it. And apparently it took them like four years to shoot the whole thing Man. And, and just and get it out there. But it's, it's really good. Obviously it's something that it's really hard to find, but if it's something that you're interested in, like it is worth going and finding and watching if you are a fan of Romance of the Three Kingdoms because it is really remarkable. It's the kind of thing that I've always wished you know cuz i'm a big fan of a lot of sort of like older works with like stuff like the odyssey, beowulf, that kind of stuff. It was a big part of my education at boulder. And so i've always loved that style of book and that kind of pace and everything with that. But generally tv like tv show miniseries adaptations or like movie adaptations like troy or something don't ever capture the feeling of those kinds of works and it's really really hard to find something that really gets that right. And this is kind of the first one I've ever seen Like totally 100% nail the feeling Of that kind of sort of epic style of, of novel Are you saying Robert Zemeckis' Beowulf didn't do it for you? No, yeah, it didn't quite, I didn't quite feel it from that one, you know They needed more CGI actors yeah I, yeah, I think there was a bit too much human and like life In those dead, dead wooden fish eyes So, yeah, so he just sort of like sapped all of that out of it I think his, his attempt would have been slightly better Speaking of uh,
0: whitewashing and Chinese box office and stuff, a little bit of trivia. John Woo's Red Cliff was the most expensive Chinese production ever Mm -hmm. until a little movie called The Great Wall starring Mr. Matt Damon. Right, yeah. (laughs) Which is now the most expensive quote-unquote Chinese movie ever. Because everyone in it is Chinese, except Mr. Matt Damon, yeah. who I don't know if you've seen like the the DVD cover of that movie. It's hilarious because it's just like this giant Matt Damon in the Great Wall. In fact, you've already lost me. Yeah, those five
1: words. Anyway, it's it's right. but it's slowly China's just going to consume Hollywood. Well, it, yeah, you know this, I think China going to consume all of us. Yes. Anyway, it's um, why I'm watching Romance of the Three Kingdoms. I'm trying to pick up a little bit of Chinese, you know, yes. slowly but surely. Culture. Culture. Yeah.
0: Alright, sounds good. Uh, let's move on to some news. Okay. This is a long list.
1: What's happening with the news, Jonathan?
0: Uh, earlier this week, actually right after we recorded our last podcast, I feel like, cause it was Monday morning, uh, Marvel dropped the trailer for Thor Ragnarok. Yes, they did
1: this movie looks good yeah that trailer was fucking awesome that was a good trailer that was yeah that's 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 like a like all-time like world-class comic book movie trailer like that was incredible yeah like
0: you know i'm really excited for you know spider-man homecoming or something but this might be the best trailer marvel's ever cut just as a like two minute get you pumped for
1: the movie. yeah i would say so it's the it has the perfect blend of like gives you a good premise for what the movie is but like I one of the things I love about it is there's like almost no dialogue in the whole trailer at all like it conveys everything it needs to through the like the editing mm-hmm. the music and just like just the perfect shots like one after the other of just like you get the sense of like okay yeah like, Thor's on Earth, badass lady shows up, she catches Mjolnir, Mjolnir blows up, it's like, we're in the hot shit now, and it's just, like, sequences of shots that give you the sense of, he's been captured, Thor's been captured, he's on some alien planet, he's being forced to fight in the gladiatorial battles. By and Jeff Goldblum! By Jeff Goldblum, and it's like, yeah, it's like, there's a, like a couple bits of dialogue here and there, but it doesn't, it's never overbearing with, like, you know, so many trailers have the kind of, like... Person like Like main person Voice over That sort of explains The movie as it's like Over a couple of shots And clearly like Somehow their dialogue Has been pieced from like Three different scenes in the movie Because <laughs> none of it sounds Like it was recorded In the same room and, and But this it's like None of that It's just Kicking your fucking ass One after the other Every single one of the shots All scored to Immigrant Song yes, Which is yeah. a great song
0: Just that's that's a song that is probably overused in trailers, but I don't care because it's so good. Yeah,
1: it, it is a one of those kinds of perfect trailer songs, kind of yeah. songs. Uh, and then it
0: you know culminates with the Hulk running out there yeah. and just that great reaction from Chris Hemsworth.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, that that is where if the trailer had not sold you by that point, I feel like that's where it sells you of like you're like oh yeah, this is Thor. Like this is yeah. why this guy is my favorite right now. Of like. You know, maybe Spider-Man is going to change this up, but as of right now, my favorite of like the main Marvel superheroes in like the movie, their movie form is still Thor because Thor is the dude that when Hulk runs out in the middle of the gladiatorial arena, he's like, "Fucking yeah, I get to hang out with Hulk and probably fight Hulk again." Like, this is great. He's a friend from work. Yes. <laughs>
0: Oh it's great It looks I mean it looks So different from The other Thor movies Yeah Taika Waititi Who's the director Of this New Zealand Director um, Who's a great director you should, If you haven't seen His film um, What We Do in the Shadows Just watch it It's so phenomenal But he's, he's really funny And and looks like He's brought something Special to this movie I love Kate Blanchett's get-up
1: in this yeah.
0: as, as the villain. They
1: went full Jack Kirby with her costume, which I love. I love. Like, the shot of her with, like, the full headdress, like, slowly turning towards the camera, like, legitimately sent chills down my spine. I want to know how they got Kate
0: Blanchett to do that. Yes.
1: <laughs> I mean, the
0: answer is buckets of money, but, you know. Maybe she's just a big Jack Kirby fan. Who, Who knows? knows? I mean, she seemed pretty into it with Lord of the Rings and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, she generally doesn't do this kind of movie. But, yeah, it's... But when she does do this kind of movie, she brings her A-game. Yeah. She's not getting millions of dollars for Carol. Carol's a great movie. She gets her Oscar nomination for it. She's not making the millions. And she doesn't get to do the fun, you know, Jack Kirby makeup. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I love it. Uh, This movie looks like a better Power Rangers movie than the Power Rangers movie that just came out. That's a pretty good way to describe it, yeah. Yeah. It looks... Like, that looks like the amount of self-aware silliness you would want if you were really doing Power Rangers. Yeah. No, it looks great. Uh, I'm very excited for it. That said, I want to really quickly talk about something I put on Twitter with this. Okay, yeah. Which is, every time... Okay, the website Polygon has some very good writers, has some good video game coverage. It also, when it comes to movies and TVs, is a shameless fucking clickbait whore. Yeah. Like, utterly shameless. Like, Thor Ragnarok will come out and all panels on their homepage will be different Thor Ragnarok clickbait bullshit. But they reached a low on the Thor Ragnarok trailer and I just have to talk about it because it's like something out of an alternate universe. It's such a dumb headline. The headline, and I have visual proof here in case you didn't see it, Sean. Yeah, no, I saw it. Thor Ragnarok trailer provides what the franchise was desperately missing
1: comedy. Yes, written by person who never saw the other two Thor movies. Yeah, react to that, Sean. Why is that dumb? Just, you know, all the Marvel movies have a certain amount of comedy to them because they are inherently kind of... You know fun Yeah m- Amusing characters That have a sense of humor Or if they don't have A sense of humor Like like Captain America Doesn't have a huge Sense of humor But his not having A sense of humor Is in and of itself Funny in the movies He is in And a lot of different scenes Like his interactions With Black Widow Or something Exactly Or you know Like the famous thing in, Like the really good scene In the Avengers Where he's like Oh I get that reference You yeah. know it's, it's that kind of stuff But Thor Out of all of them Is by far With maybe the exception Now of Ant-Man Is the one that can Kind of like Occupy the same spot but before Ant-Man Thor and Thor 2 were by far the funniest Marvel movies they had the most sort of like I think deliberate push towards comedy in a lot of ways to sort of because the heavy sort of Shakespearean like Shakespeare in the woods kind of stuff in Thor and Thor 2 is so sort of intense in that world and like the way everyone talks is so sort of epic fantasy you need to get down in the mud and have some some really great jokes like the still unparalleled number one best joke in any superhero movie ever is Thor walking into an apartment seeing a coat rack and hanging up Mjolnir on the coat rack still no no comic book movie has ever surpassed that I doubt any comic book movie ever will
0: it's it's like people just want to say that Guardians of the Galaxy invented humor in comic book movies like there really is this push that I yeah. see of like that's the first movie that did it and it's like I love Guardians of the Galaxy it's really good it's not even the funniest Marvel movie.
1: Yeah, no. Like,
0: it's, it's... I know a lot of people don't love Thor The Dark World, and it is a messier movie than a lot of Marvel films. I think it's still their funniest film. Yeah, me too. Like, it is... Like, I wouldn't say it's about Thor 1. Thor 1 is comedic, but not a comedy. Thor The Dark World is straight up a comedy. Mm-hmm. It is... It has some dramatic beats in it. But it is by and large a comedy. I mean, those two movies, one of the main characters is played by comedian Kat Dennings. You know? Right, it's yeah. like yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. yeah. And she's she's really funny in them. And I'm really sad that she's on that awful CBS show and I can't watch her anything in anything better. Yeah. You know? Um but yeah, it's like those movies, like you have to be so willfully ignorant to write a headline like that. And I actually went and read the article just to be fair. Of like, maybe an editor gave it a bad headline. Right, yeah. No. The article is even dumber in what it tries to, like, say about those movies. And, you know, what I said on Twitter was, you don't have to like those movies. And I know plenty of people, for good reasons, don't like the Thor movies. Yeah. I get it. If you are saying they didn't try hard enough to be funny, you're an idiot. Uh-huh. Just There's no other way to say it. Like, you don't have to laugh at it to recognize it's trying to be funny. Like, something can be comedic without you finding it funny.
1: Yeah. Right? No, yeah, yeah Like if the joke didn't work on you That's fine But yeah, no Like they were clearly going for A humorous tone Right For like a lot of Thor 1 With all the fish out of water stuff And for most of Thor 2
0: And I've seen a lot of people Not just this, this one article But a lot of people saying like Oh Thor Ragnarok is clearly trying to You know Get those Guardians of the Galaxy dollars And to me it's like no, one, Guardians of the Galaxy was very influenced by the Thor movies. You yeah. don't get that movie without Thor 1, and, and I guess it was made at the same time as 2, but you don't get it without Thor 1. And two, this looks like Thor in space.
1: Yeah, this looks like, to me, a natural extension of where the Thor movies have been going yes. all along. Like, obviously, they've been, each one has been directed by a different person, but there's this clear movement from Thor 1 to Thor 2 of it getting more comedic, it getting more sort of... Like, I was like, creative and epic. Epic's the wrong word, but like, kind of like, silly with the action stuff. Like, that's... Even if, like, Thor 2 has a lot of problems, it still has, I think, one of the better action climaxes of any of the Marvel movies with all the crazy portal stuff and and teleporting all over the place. It's a lot more entertaining than a lot of them, yeah. Yeah, it's it's very... It's a very light, colorful, fun movie because Thor comes from this ridiculous, light, colorful fantasy world of Asgard where, you know, he literally travels to to Earth on a rainbow bridge. And so it's like... That is the tone that these movies have had. They have always leaned harder into that than most of the other Marvel movies by the sheer necessity of the setting. And so this feels like if the tone of the finished movie is you know, being indicated by this trailer accurately, this feels like just like, yeah, this is where the Thor movies have been going all along. When I watched the Thor Ragnarok trailer, my first thought was like, thor is back not like oh they've got thor right it's no they got th- thor is back and it seems like this is probably going to be even better than those other ones but this is absolutely the same kind of tone and style that they had well and,
0: and because of when the dark world came out pretty early in that second cycle it's been a while since we had a standalone thor movie. yeah so you know we're still waiting to resolve like that big cliffhanger from the end of thor 2 which i love that loki is the new king yeah or he's taken over odin's body or form at least so
1: yeah it looks like a lot of fun I, I do also thinking of Loki I love that you get only like one shot Where Loki is very prominent in the trailer But they made sure it was a shot with him With his stupid fucking hat on And I love that in 2017 We can still have Tom Hiddleston wear that hat That makes me very happy deep inside
0: I, I imagine Tom Hiddleston goes home at night And wears that hat Yeah, It's
1: probably why Taylor Swift broke up with him <laughs> Yeah she's just like I can't it just, it just keeps on poking me in the eye When you roll over <laughs> bed It's just Tom I can't handle it you have to quit cosplaying in bed. It's like, you don't get it. I'm method. It's my thing. It's like, I can't, I can't be comfortable with myself unless I'm wearing my Thor or my Loki crown. That really is what I think was missing
0: from the Kong Skull Island movie, was I liked Tom Hiddleston in it. He had his accent and all that. He didn't have the
1: hat. Yeah. And that's
0: it's disappointing.
1: Yeah, to me, like, they really are sort of a bargain. One has to come with the other. It doesn't really work. Yeah, exactly. So, anyway, you know, can't wait. I also gotta say, the title
0: treatment of this movie with, yeah. like, the neon colors... Oh, perfect. Wonderful. Love it. Yes, We've got Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Spider-Man, and Thor Ragnarok this year from Marvel. And those all look amazing in different ways.
1: Yeah, and they all look like very distinct. Yeah, I'm very happy. Cannot wait.
0: All right, Uh, let's move on. Uh, Piece of gaming news. This is all kind of in order from when it came out in the week. Uncharted The Lost Legacy will be out August 22nd. And that alone is not the interesting piece of news. What's interesting is that in coming out in August... For it's gonna be a standalone game of thirty-nine ninety-nine. It'll yeah. have a full retail version too. Like you can get this on disc. That confirms that while this was initially planned as a DLC a la Last of Us Left Behind, yeah. it's not anymore. It's a full Uncharted game. It just doesn't have Nathan Drake in it. And I find that really interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I I think it's cool because also like one of the things that has kind of come out around this is that the studio that is making this Is like a small It it reminds me a lot of Actually a lot of this Reminds me of Halo 3 ODST Where it's like a smaller group Within Naughty Dog Sort of splintered off To sort of work on this And try to get like Some of like the people Who are leading this project Like have them have experience Leading a project on their own To sort of like You know Have them be their own team While Neil Druckmann And like the larger sort of Naughty Dog studio Is hard at work on Last of Us Part 2 And there's I really love that I love like When these really huge studios Can find a way to sort of Break off and make a a smaller, more intimate. Project with a smaller Sort of studio within them Sometimes But the, with the same sort of Technology and budget And stuff that Like in production value Standard that they have For a full Uncharted 4 Sometimes the best games Come out of
0: that Yeah Like uh, the one you mentioned Is a Halo 3 OST, Great example But even as far back as Link's Awakening That's how that happened Yeah Which is a small team Basically testing the Game Boy At night And then they made What is still many people's Favorite Legend of yeah. Zelda game I mean Majora's Mask Is also the yep. same way yeah. yeah So I love it When this happens I love that we're basically Getting a full Uncharted Uncharted game this year Still from Naughty Dog yeah. And uh, $39.99 totally reasonable I think if it is as you know They're saying it's like a 10 hour campaign which is Shorter than Uncharted 4 but On par with the other three Games yeah. which is interesting And yeah the other cool Thing they did is that when They sold the season pass for Uncharted 4 if you bought That they were planning like $15 of that would be this and Then they realized okay this Is gonna be bigger so they've Since ceased selling that but If you got it they will still Give you the game for free yeah, and that's, that's really cool of them.
1: Yeah, that's that's a that's a good guy kind of move. That because it would be very easy to justify. Oh, we'll like refund you or something, or like instead, we'll like put out another multiplayer map pack or something like that. Right. But yeah, like that. Making sure that season pass people still get what they paid for is cool. Yeah,
0: season passes can sometimes be really gross, and sometimes they're totally fine if you are willing to be you know fluid with them yeah <laughs> because sometimes things grow or change yeah or like
1: game development is really complicated and it you know you never quite know what you're going to get out of it and so you yeah. know, stand right by the people who have decided to i think like oftentimes foolishly but did decide to pre-order your dlc is a concept i've never really been behind no. but if people did it like you need to stand by them
0: yeah so it's cool
1: i'm looking forward to this game hell i might even get it on a disc because
0: i got all the other games on disc just sure put it on the My shelf, shelf. Yeah, so we'll see. Uh, it's got some cool pre-order bonuses too. If you get it uh, from PlayStation pre-order, they'll give you the first Jack and Daxter game, and they're putting out all the Jack and Daxters on yeah. PS Four. So that's kind of a neat pre-order bonus. But we're getting some Naughty Dog goodness this year because we've got yeah. um, this coming out. We've got the um, the, the Crash Bandicoot Crash Bandicoot yeah. collection. I almost said Ratchet and Clank, and I'm like, that's not it. But they, they're all kind of similar. Yeah,
1: it's the <laughs> third person character mascot yeah. PlayStation franchise
0: platformer game Uh, Crash Bandicoot that trilogy is coming out all the Jack and Daxters are coming out by the end of this year every Naughty Dog game from PS1 on will be on the PS4 yeah and that is pretty cool because I already have my Naughty Dog folder I'm looking forward to filling it out even though, though I won't have time to play all of those I want like a folder that's just there are the collected works of a developer yeah you don't get that much
1: yeah, there's a part of me that kind of wants to play Jack and Daxter 1 again because that was a game I played a lot at a friend's house who had a PS2 and Decided not, not. Yeah. And that like, th- was like one of those 3D platformers that kind of, it didn't fully capture Super Mario 64, but it felt more like Super Mario 64 than like, the Banjo-Kazooie games or something like that ever did. Yeah. I-, I would be curious to go back to that and see if that still sort of feels that way to me. Then one
0: week later on August 29th Also for the PS4 we're getting Yakuza Kiwami the yes. remake of the Original Yakuza which you're super excited for yes. And it's only twenty nine ninety nine.
1: Yeah I was very happy to see that that's Like because you, you know it's a full 100% re- like rebuild Of the original Yakuza game using The engine and stuff of Yakuza 0 so it's not Like they took this PS2 game And sort of like you know up res the textures and, and sort of put it out there made it widescreen or whatever It's completely built up from the Ground up I think all like the voice acting is new because they've had to recast um, some of the, the the like older characters that only appeared in that first game and give the new voices and stuff but yeah like that's as someone who loved Yakuza 0 and is for me personally if you disregard Persona 5 because I played that in 2016 first Yakuza 0 is to me the best game I've played this year so like having that sequel come out also having it be $30 like that's That's fucking awesome. I'm really excited.
0: I got to play me some Yakuza Zero this summer so I can join you on the Kiwami train. Looks fun. Yeah. Uh, PS4, man, they. They, it took them a couple of years to rev up, but the number of exclusives coming out for this console is kind of off the charts. Yeah. It's PS2 days, All again, honestly, in terms yeah. of how much they've got coming into this system. Yeah, because they
1: just hit the, have hit the point where they have such a large market share that people are making games for, the especially Japan is making games for the PlayStation 4, that are only coming out on the PlayStation 4, just because that's, like, why bother putting it on something else, because... That's where most of your market is and So it's like just put it out there Especially if you're in
0: Japan where literally no one's ever bought an yeah. Xbox One I'm
1: not sure if anyone's ever seen an Xbox One in
0: Japan yet I think the week the Switch came out I saw the sales numbers and it sold literally In like the hundreds Not thousands just like the hundreds that yeah. week Which is insane Anyway um, yeah, uh, Movie news next Okay, Same day or part of this week the Warner Brothers announced that Jude Law Awesome actor Yes. He has been cast as Dumbledore for the next Fantastic Beasts movie, which doesn't have a title or anything yet, but J.K. Rowling's writing it. David Yates will probably direct it because I think he's made a blood oath to direct these until he dies. He's really good at them, and I assume they're fun to make. Like so. at
1: some point, it just feels like that J.K. Rowling or or like Warner Brothers or someone just literally summoned him using a spell and like just contracted him to make Harry Potter movies, and that's all he's here for. He's very good at it. He is very, very good at it. Yes, yes for sure. So I, I get it. Like if if someone is throwing at you
0: hundreds of millions of dollars to make a fun magic movie, you might as well, you know, yeah. and you get to work with cool actors like Jude Law. So getting back to that, the Fantastic Beast movies are set you know, very early in the Harry Potter timeline, and, you know, at this point in the story, Dumbledore would be, like, in his 40s or something, and it's all building to a piece of lore from the Harry Potter movies, or from the stories. It's actually not in the movies, which is uh, Dumbledore's fight with Grindelwald, uh, who is being, still apparently being played by Johnny Depp, but I, they gotta be reconsidering that, I hope. You know, I just, just, hopefully Pirates 5 bombs somehow, and then they have a change of heart. As if the wife beating didn't give them the change of heart. I don't know. Anyway, but Jude Law has been cast as young Dumbledore. At first I was like, is he really... He seems too young to play Dumbledore. And then I'm like, well, he's actually older than Dumbledore would be at this point in the timeline. So give him a beard. He'll be good. And I like Jude Law. Only thing is the other actors who have played Dumbledore, Richard Harris and uh, Michael Gambon, are both Irish. So it seemed like they were kind of sticking to in that casting an Irish thing with Dumbledore. Jude Law is British very close obviously but uh i'll, I'll miss uh, having yeah, that l- no holly hollywood is at it again whitewashing motherfuckers <laughs> oh right yeah anyway but yeah i mean as an irish person of irish descent how do yeah. you feel about
1: that uh deeply offended <laughs> deeply right. offended even as someone who doesn't really care much for the harry potter movies i always liked the dumbledore in them so yeah no
0: Dumbledore's cool jude <laughs> law is a very good actor yeah he'll and, be fine he'll be fine and of course we get to make the young dumbledore
1: jokes because he just finished playing the young pope yeah it would, one thing that would be great with Jude Law With his performance is To make up for the fact that he's not Irish He just like plays Dumbledore with an obnoxious Irish accent For the whole movie <laughs> I did I, did, I did, Grindelwald Exactly yeah
0: Jesus Jonathan. You said god. obnoxious That's the obnoxious I, Irish the accent Obnoxious
1: but like maybe not quite as racist as you went for Okay Good god That's your That's your notes
0: Yeah Yeah Alright Let's uh, move on Let's move on Xbox, in uh, one of their recent like beta tests of something, it looks like there's, as part of the next version of the operating systems, they are testing a refund system, very similar to Steam. Yeah. Where if you've played a game for a certain number of hours, didn't like it, had a problem with it, you can get a refund. That's cool. It's another... Kind of uh, quality of life thing Xbox is is putting into their operating system, which they have a lot of nice little things like that that other systems like the PS4 don't have, such as very uh, transparent download speeds right. and some things like that. So it's nice. It's not necessarily enough to make me want to use their operating system, but hopefully this at least pushes like Sony and Nintendo to go in that direction because. You know, consumers lost most of their rights in the move to digital. Having things like refunds is just a good thing to have.
1: Yeah, and it is interesting to see that they basically just sort of copied more or less what Steam's policy is. And that is sort of heartening to just see, like, it feels like Microsoft is just, like, very quietly, like, sort of just, like, putting themselves in that camp and saying, like, hey, this is where Mm -hmm. things should be just for, like, you know, the sake of the customers. Yeah, I really hope. And I do kind of expect that this move will... Put enough pressure that at the very least Sony will hopefully like move in that direction in the relatively near future. Two knows with Nintendo? The, the, the after I finished um, the Breath of the Wild, I had this like weird feeling of like you know what? I have a Wii and I could play Skyward Sword. Like I like I could probably get it pretty cheap. And I looked on Amazon. I was like, oh right, Nintendo never re- like reduces the cost of their games. Skyward Sword still costs fifty dollars. That game is like five years old. You can download it for twenty on the Wii. Okay. Yeah. On the Wii on, U. On, But if you want to get A new version Of like a disc On Amazon.com It is 50 fucking bucks You can also
0: borrow My copy if you want Yeah No I get it um, No I, I mean That said Sony still does The stupid Dumb fuck wallet thing Where you can oh, Only sure, yeah. spend in increments Of five dollars So if you want to buy Just like a wallpaper You're never going to Because it's two And you would have to Buy more than that I think that's weird That they've never, Like Nintendo at least Got rid of that With the um well, they never—they always—they had a wallet on the 3DS, but you could put whatever you wanted into it. There was no minimum or anything, and the Switch gets rid of it entirely. So, yeah, I so Sony and frankly Sony and Nintendo both have some ground to catch up in in some of those areas, yeah. even though it's it's overall fine. But yeah, um, It will be interesting. Mostly. PlayStation has not been super responsive to moves Xbox has made because they're the market leaders and they don't have to be. You know, they have made no real move on backwards compatibility despite that being a big thing
1: on Xbox. Yeah, I mean, that's also, like, that is such a, like, compared to adopting a refund policy, like, that's, like, backwards compatibility is just a technical feat at some point. It
0: is. You know, they, yeah, it's it's interesting that we haven't heard any, like, even, like, rumors or, like, a leaked report of, like they're trying or something i don't know um but yeah i mean you're right it's a very different thing so we'll see if this extends hope it does good on xbox for doing that yeah as again more evidence there are a ton of really smart people on the xbox team right now yes and desperately they're... trying to write that that ship <laughs> yes uh very again the titanic metaphor not a bad one yeah they hit the iceberg anyway
1: and now they're trying to like get the water out maybe basically. maybe that's what the name of the the scorpio is going to be is the xbox titanic we, and it we... automatically
0: plays My Heart Will Go On exactly. When you turn it on Yeah That's the startup music Xbox has not had startup music For a while That's its new startup music Yeah Just I can imagine Celine Dion on stage At the reveal It's
1: just Leonardo DiCaprio Holding a Scorpio up over a book <laughs> <laughs> Man, how much would you have to pay Leonardo DiCaprio to get him to do that? A lot of money. Like, or do-
0: how much I would you have to donate to a global foundation for global warming? Yeah. Or, if we you know,
1: need. like you, you don't actually need actors anymore. You just have Cyber Leo yes. play it for you. That's fine. Because then you can get him like he's 19-year-old Leo exactly. again, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, Nintendo
0: news. What's, what's Nintendo doing? A bunch of Nintendo news. I'm going to go with the easier one first. Okay. Just because yeah. there's a harder one later. Uh, the, our first Nintendo Switch sales numbers for North America came out. And it's kind of interesting, it sold in North America 906,000 units in the month of March, so that doesn't count anything from April, but in its first month 906,000 units, and the fun part of that is that it's 926,000 copies of Zelda, a 102% attach rate.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, hey, it makes sense. Yeah. To a certain extent With like, like Part of like What is in those numbers Is also that like The Switch is severely Supply constrained Like as with every Major console launch So they sold every comp- yeah. Copy they had Yeah wow. so there are Obviously I think there were Just a lot of people That were hoping to get a Switch Like went to a store Expect to get a Switch And were like Well I'm not going to have a Switch I might as well pick up Zelda while I'm here, right? I can I, see that. I
0: knew someone in my yeah. office who did that and then got a Switch about a month later um, and is now enjoying it. But yeah, he had a, he had he he was one of those over the 100% attach rate things for a while. Still, that that has to be a record, right? For a non-packed-in game to have a full-on 100% attach rate. Maybe, what yeah. other console would have? I'm just trying to think. Like of, Halo, maybe with the original Xbox, but I don't know with that one. But even then, like it's it's not you know Halo wasn't yet the established brand for Xbox, you know. Sure, so but I, I mean, what... it did, like, really hit hard yeah, yeah. when it hit. But, but yeah. I just, that's, I mean, for one month, just, like, literally, you know, maybe that there's someone who got it without Zelda, but then, you know, you can't know that. The statistics
1: are 102% attach rate. Do you think there's anybody who showed up at, like, the GameStop and was like, oh, you guys don't have a Switch? Oh, well, I guess I'll buy one, two Switch anyways. They're like, are you sure you don't want Zelda? No, I'm I'm pretty sure I just want one, two Switch. Like, it's fine. I don't need that Zelda game.
0: There are crazy people out there, Sean. Yeah. Crazy people! Uh, this is the biggest launch ever for Nintendo of any yeah. of their consoles, and um, the second highest launch. I would not have ever guessed this was the GBA. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, uh, like just below in like the eight hundred thousands. But even like the the Wii or the GameCube or the N sixty four, way lower. Um, in that I first mean, month. It's, some of that's different. It's
1: because of the supply constraint issue. Like it's yeah. it's these kinds of numbers are impossible to read. Like what right. is the ultimate future of the Switch going to be? Because it's again like the Wii like sold like insane but it was severely supply constrained at launch no totally and yeah. i'm not
0: saying like this pretends anything it's just an interesting stat to me of like yeah if you were to write the story in your head it's not exactly what you would think um yeah but you know and again we don't know what this means for the future great start obviously yeah
1: it, it at least means that it's not a flop like that's because you
0: know what clear. wasn't supply constrained at launch the wii u yeah you could get a wii u on launch day if you wanted and uh the sales numbers for that showed it so yeah At least a good start for the system. And, you know, they, uh, then they had a Nintendo Direct. I'm going to go through some of this really quick. Sure, yeah. Um, Because there's not a ton, I think, to dive into here, but it was a pretty beefy Nintendo Direct in terms of lots of game announcements, pretty, you know, good trickle of games through to, like, E3, which I'm sure we're going to, at that point, we're going to hear about a ton more stuff. This was not, like, huge announcements, but they, you know, dated, like, ARMS is coming out June 16th, Um, Disgaea 5 May 23rd, Minecraft on Switch May 11th. They've got a Namco Museum game coming out with all that stuff. Puyo Puyo Tetris got a demo. I'm really looking forward to that game, and I have the demo. I just haven't played it yet because of Persona 5 here. Um, But that's coming out April 25th. Rayman Legends Definitive coming out. Um, Splatoon 2 coming out July 21st. Ultra Street Fighter 2 on May 26th. Sonic Forces got another showing at this Nintendo yeah. Switch event and looks, still looks cool. Yep. And that'll be coming out in the fall, they're saying. Uh, and then the 3DS got a couple of announcements. It has a game, a new Pikmin game called Hey Pikmin coming out. Uh, announcements the, the, of... the great
1: successor to the, the fabled Hey Pikachu franchise, Which, is Hey this Pikmin. Where, do you just talk to the Pikmin? I, I, I have no idea. I didn't yeah. watch the Nintendo Direct, so maybe. Yeah. I hope so. Uh, some other games that we knew about
0: that uh, had not been dated yet, including Ever Oasis and the final Box Boy game, Bye Bye Box Boy. Which uh, that's actually a really fun little series, and that actually came out. They did the thing of like it's out now, and so that's out. Uh, and some new Kirby mini games because this is like the 25th anniversary of Kirby. Uh, and everyone kind of forgot about it because they didn't make a Kirby game. I mean, they have been making a lot of Kirby games recently, though. So at least is. they've been doing right by, by the same Basically, if you, if you didn't know what these minigames they're releasing are, because they're all free in the eShop, they're the mini games that are packaged in with Kirby Planet Robobot. Oh, okay. And they're pretty cool, fun games. They're, I'm glad they're not, at least so far, charging you for them separately because um, that's not what they were built to be, obviously. But it's kind of cool that if you didn't play Planet Robobot, they're splitting out these games, which are completely separate, and you can just play them on their own. So that's all the news from the Nintendo Direct, you know, just kind of dating everything, and so we know what the next couple months look like. Yeah. And, uh, you know,
1: mine, finally we'll get back to Minecraft being on everything, basically. Yeah, there was that sad window where it was like, oh, I can own something that doesn't play Minecraft. What does is, what is our world come to? And honestly, Minecraft
0: on the Switch. I might get back into it on that because that's, that's the perfect you know, console for it. Sure. I thought it would be the Vita for a while, and then the Vita port of Minecraft was a flaming pile of shit. Huh. So, like, I didn't know you could port Minecraft badly, but they did. The Vita version of that is, like, blurry and slow and weird. I don't huh. know what happened with that. But yeah, it's um, kind of cool that it's, it's coming to Switch. So, yeah. But that's, that was their Nintendo Direct. Lots of news. So, that's the Switch for now. Yeah, yep. I like my Switch. But what else has Nintendo been up to, Jonathan? Alright, in the midst of talk of basically success, Nintendo has had good PR on a lot of things lately. No major fuck-ups so far. Um, Nintendo discontinued in a note to IGN, of all places, the NES Classic Edition, also known as the Mini NES. Also known as, why the fuck can't I find a Mini NES? Also known as, wait, this was successful and you're getting rid of it? What?
1: Yeah, it was a very curious piece of news And it's something that I'm sad about it because it feels like we now have to put it into our running joke on this podcast about how nobody can find a mini NES.
0: Yep. I mean, the mini NES sold like 1.5 million units, even though I still am not convinced anyone actually has one. Yeah. Because they're still like, they were never, you could never walk into, this never became a case where you could walk into a store and find one. They were always sold out immediately. They were very, just perennially hard to find and Nintendo looked at that and said, "Hey, we've got this runaway freight train success. Let's get rid of it." I don't think they understand how supply and demand works.
1: Yeah, it's a really I've never quite seen something like this because it's not like it's not like they announced it as like a limited edition run here's these like special mini nes things that they were like gonna sell for like this holiday season and then like maybe sometime in the future they'll like restore the line or something it was they just said like no we're gonna put this thing out it's got 30 nes games it looks like a tiny little nes that has little tiny cords on it and buy it and then like it's i guess they didn't expect it to sell that well at all based on the numbers they actually manufactured of it and then it just ended up selling like hotcakes They expected it, and
0: I can buy this part of it even though it's dumb. But Nintendo is dumb sometimes in this direction. I can buy that they thought it would sell as like a little hobbyist item. And that's what they manufactured it as. And for some reason they weren't aware of what the brand name Nintendo and what the brand name NES carries around the world. Yeah. And so whatever. Mistakes were made. I can accept that. That you would then say... Let's do nothing about that and not capitalize on this because this console probably costs us like fifty cents to manufacture. I don't, I don't get it. Like, I, I yeah. can even get it through the launch of the Switch. Of like, they're obviously going to prioritize whatever factory space they have making the Switch. The fact that the Switch is still probably going to be supply constrained for a year, whatever. You know, <laughs> right. Right? Nintendo is not good at this making things. You know, um, they can they can generally get the discs out for consoles. Sure, yeah. Generally, not always, but generally. Consoles themselves, it's hard, but like, yeah, that they misread it every step of the way is bizarre to me. And the thing is, I can also buy the theory that they thought maybe this was going to be. Once they saw the numbers and everything, they discontinued it because maybe it was too successful for their own good. They're probably going to announce a robust virtual console thing as soon as they can, like at E3. And knowing that the Switch is a success and all that, they probably want to say, "Hey." we will do better in the long run if people move towards the Switch for these games and not to this little thing that we can only sell once and we're never going to get more money out of it, you know, because it doesn't connect to the internet or anything. That being said, there's so many steps of that logic chain that are bad logic. Uh Like, why do it in the first place if that was your plan and your thought process,
1: you know? Yeah, and also, like, I think while there's obviously going to be some overlap, I think there is a big difference in the general market, for a Nintendo Switch and a mini NES. Like yeah. they are two completely different price ranges. They are giving you completely different experiences. I could totally see someone who owns a Nintendo Switch. going like I don't really need to buy a mini NES. And would be perfectly happy to pay whatever money to play like Super Mario Brothers. And Castlevania 3 or whatever on their Switch. And not buy like the $60 thing that plays 30 games. And they only want to play like 10 of them or whatever. Right. So very strange. Just the whole lifespan of this
0: thing was crazy to me. Just that it was so severely supplied. More so than the Switch. Easier to find a Switch than the NES Classic. Which is crazy. And then just up to this point of like, you know, it never had... There was never a shipment that went out and then like it slacked a little of like it was easy to get. That never happened. And then just out of the blue it's, we're done.
1: Yeah. How likely do you think it is that like Nintendo just forgot how to make them? And just sort of cover up that like someone dropped the recipe like, under the couch, and they just couldn't find it anymore. They're like, we have no idea how we made these things. And they're like, we're canceling the line because we want to focus on the Nintendo Switch Virtual Console. And the thing is, they didn't even say
0: that. No, you know? they like, did not. If the... if the if, And Nintendo is bad at press releases. They're, the Japanese companies are bad at this. Yeah. You know, um, if they had said, yeah, we're to focus on Virtual Console, which we know is coming for the Nintendo Switch, but no, no. it's it's all bizarre and look i'm all in favor of them putting all their resources into the switch because it's a great console and i can't wait to see what they do with it but this is still weird
1: yeah it just like you said it feels like if this is what you were ever going to do like if this was in your sort of like plans in the first place why did you ever even bother making the mini nes like the one thing i can kind of see is people are speculating that like they're like ending this line of it to then like do a mini nes 2 and mini snes and stuff like that but if that is the case i feel like this as like trying to do this to pivot into that phase of some sort of like mini NES like line of consoles is really awkward and like does not giving people a good sense of like brand loyalty or something stay, of just, like expectations around this brand by doing this. Just
0: stay quiet and let your inventory trickle out until you're ready to announce what's next.
1: Yeah. That, it's,
0: duh. I'm not a marketing guy but I can come up with this. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. It's weird. N- Nintendo. Nintendo. You know, hey, if that's the dumbest thing they do this year, they're having an okay year.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah that, that's, that is one way to put it, sure. For Nintendo. You yeah. still have to wait for them to roll out the like their larger online services for sure. Nintendo Switch. So sure. I would not hold yeah. my breath for this am, to be the last stupid thing that Nintendo does this
0: year. I am very curious. Um, you know, one of the games they're going to have on the Switch later this month that I'll definitely mm-hmm. be getting is the Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. Right. So they're going to have that on there. And that's obviously got a pretty robust online uh, section to the game. Are they going to launch some of this online stuff with it? we right. ready for that? I'm not... I'm, sh- I'm curious how that's going to work. Because that will be kind of the first big game with online functionality that has come out for
1: this thing. Well, I think Nintendo's probably very excited to announce an l- exclusive limited edition run of a mini NES Kart Racer in Mario Kart 8. So you'll be able to play the mini NES, just not in the way you thought you would. That's weird. Yeah. All right. Um...
0: Okay, a couple pieces of Star Wars news. Let's go with the literal one first. Okay. So we can end with the bigger one. At Star Wars Celebration, uh, there was a lot of different stuff that happened, actually a lot of just cool hearing from the panels and stuff. Yeah. It sounded like they had some really cool remembrances of Carrie Fisher. Mark Hamill said a lot of cool stuff about her. And that was just neat to hear. We also heard... We saw the last Jedi trailer. We'll talk about that in a second. We also heard about the official announcement of Star Wars
1: Battlefront Two. Yes. No, not that one. The new, oh! another one. New one. I, I thought you were going to tell me that they were re-releasing Star Wars Battlefront Two, a game I very much enjoyed on the original Xbox and that year of consoles onto my PlayStation 4.
0: No. This is... Star Wars Battlefront Two is in the sequel to the game called Star Wars Battlefront,
1: but not that yeah, no, Star Wars Battlefront. Yeah, not that oh. Star Wars Battlefront.
0: The EA Star Wars Battlefront, which was
1: very okay... Yes, it was a very okay video game that looked very pretty. Yes, and Battlefront 2 looks like it will be okay at least. And, and hopefully prettier, although it seemed like a very cinematic sort of trailer they released. I would
0: love to have a fun, you know, good multiplayer Star Wars game on the modern consoles. Yes. Battlefront came close in a lot of ways. Uh, I also would prefer they
1: not just title these the exact same as these beloved games that people still play. Yeah, I was kind of okay with it when it was just star wars battlefront and it was like okay i can i can kind of work with this but because i played way more battlefront 2 the battlefront 1 back in the day like now that they're calling it just battlefront 2 with like roman numerals and everything is like okay now i'm not fine with this anymore because it's kind of making my head hurt kind of like we love doom 2016
0: yeah we're fine with them calling it doom but if the next one is just called Doom 2, we're going to have to have some words yeah, with them. Yeah,
1: especially if they also give it, Doom, they give it the same subtitle and call it Doom 2 Hell on Earth. Then it would be really confusing. Yeah. It's just,
0: when you do sequels to remakes, give them a different... And this isn't even a remake is the thing. Like, it's not a Battlefront game mechanically.
1: No, yeah, it's very different. Very different. Games.
0: And that's fine... But it's like, give it a different title, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It is it is definitely, it's going to be confusing,
1: especially because Battlefront 2 still has kind of an active user base in different corners of yeah, the world. Yeah, like, I load it up and play it a little bit every now and then. I have it on the PC now, and that's has a yeah. really still somewhat active multiplayer community. Because obviously, like, the original Xbox version, that version of, course, of Xbox yeah. Live is dead. So it's not going to have a multiplayer community on there no matter what. So little bizarre uh yeah. yeah we have not seen anything to indicate what gameplay will be like we know i there- mean it was it was a very like story focused thing because they're now they announced like oh there's going to be a single player mode which like hey you know i enjoyed the single player mode in battlefront 2 it was a kind of a cool thing where bridge the cap the the gaps between episode 3 and 4 where you played as a uh, republic clone trooper who then was like one of the first stormtroopers and kind of like bridge that nice. story gap it was like the the mission design was never amazing but like it had enough of like okay this is kind of cool and you go like do the raid on the Jedi temple at the end of episode 3 and stuff like that then so i think there's I, there's a, something cool to be done with a story mode in this Battlefront 2 that's set between Episode 6 and Episode 7, and you playing as this Imperial Storm Agent, or Imperial Agent Lady, or whatever she is in the trailer. So there's some promise there, but also from what I've heard, like, other di- the Battlefield dice games have never had really good story modes, so... Yeah, so we'll knows. see, I mean...
0: It could be cool. Apparently, I actually didn't see the trailer, but I saw people on Twitter. I guess they they indicated there will be some prequel stuff in this game. Yes,
1: it is going to... They didn't show much of it in the trailer other than a shot of, like, Darth Maul as he's going to be a playable hero. But yeah, there is going to be prequel stuff in there.
0: Good, because there's, you know, you don't have to like the prequels to think that the world is cool and that we should
1: have that in there just to make the game richer. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool designs, cool, like, enemies, like, like all the different droids, all the different ships and all that stuff that's cool to bring in. You know, I think... The first
0: Battlefront they did was pretty close in a lot of areas. If they can improve on that and make this... You know, I don't need it to be a great game. I think it would be fun to be able to, you know, get online with a friend and just play some... Just some Star Wars multiplayer. That'd be cool if there was something like that in the modern context. Yeah,
1: it's been a long time since Star Wars video games were, like, a big thing. And I really miss that because that was... Like, there was such that rich period around, like, the mid-2000s where you had, like, Knights of the Old Republic, Republic Commando, Battlefront two, and those kinds of games coming out. And that kind of ended around, like, the first Star Wars The Force Unleashed, which wasn't an amazing game, but was an okay enough game. And then so, after that, it just totally petered off. Star Wars has almost always had
0: just great games. Like, yeah. I, I love the Super Star Wars series on the yeah. SNES even. Yeah. There's a lot of, just throughout history, good Star Wars games, so... Yeah, we'll see if they can they can do even better with this. You know, if they've the, because the thing is, if the production values can be matched with better gameplay, then I think you got a winner on your hands. Yeah, definitely. The problem is, Battlefront had beautiful production values and was fun on that level, but the gameplay was kind of so shallow. There was nothing much to it. Yeah. If you can beef that up a little bit, I think would, I don't need this to be super deep either, but
1: deep enough to make me not fall asleep. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there you and go. One last note is, I feel like Star Wars has now. Spent for the last time Their card Of having the slow Sad piano version Of the Imperial March theme At the end of your trailer Because that's what They did in Battlefront 2 That was like All the Rogue One trailers Did that kind of stuff You've now Once that is for The Star Wars Battlefront 2 trailer You're done You can't do that anymore It's done Alright Speaking of Star Wars
0: Yes The big event of course Of Star Wars Celebration Was the unveiling of the trailer for Star Wars The Last Jedi at the end of a panel that I did not watch but I followed on Twitter and Ryan Johnson is just an awesome dude and showed all these amazing behind the scenes pictures and had the great quote of like I took them because everyone else would have gotten shot (laughs) because I was the director I'm the only one who can take the behind the scenes pictures very true so uh, Ryan Johnson's a cool dude and I thought this was a cool trailer yeah I liked it I liked it I I went back after I watched it I went back and watched the first trailer for uh, Force Awakens right Which was, you know, had a lot of hype at the time, but it's a pretty bad actual, like, assemblage of footage. Right. This is such a better, like, piece of marketing in terms of, like, telling a little kind of almost, you know, thematic story over its 90 seconds. Yeah. Than I think Force Awakens kind of ever was able to do in its trailers. And, you know, J.J. Abrams has many talents. His thing about showing nothing in trailers is too coy and annoying. Yeah, this, yeah.
1: This trailer did a much struck a much nicer balance of not, especially since this is the first trailer. You don't want to give a huge amount of the movie away, right? And it, but it did just sort of give you that sense of like, okay, like it's it picks up where Episode Seven leaves off. Ray is on that island with Luke, and it's just sort of like some images that are very evocative and a little bit of voiceover that's kind of giving you the sense of okay, they're moving in that like very sort of gray Jedi like oh this is the light side, it's the dark side, there's so much more to it like that kind of stuff that's very. That That is, I think, like, is a very much a part of the original trilogy, even if it didn't emphasize it. Because Luke, by the end of that, becomes a very different Jedi than what you saw of what Obi-Wan and Yoda were. So I think that's, like, always been part of that character's DNA. But it feels like here they're putting it, like, much more in the forefront of what they're doing with this movie. Yeah, I just... I think it looks great. I love
0: the... Uh, Ryan Johnson is such a talented director. Every shot in this is great. and And great, but in a way where... You know, I think Force Awakens had very nice cinematography, but, you know, nothing all that special, just very good. And I think Rogue One had a great use of iconography and really interesting plays on that, but the movie itself was not much deeper than that, and that was a problem. This, I thought there were a lot of shots in it where it's like, that doesn't look inherently like a Star Wars shot, too. Sure, yeah. And I like, that's what I kind of want to see. And out of a guy like Ryan Johnson, who is not the obvious pick for a Star Wars movie, I love that. And, you know, some of those are like, the shot of Ray, kind of, uh, I assume it's Ray, using the Force on the ground and like the gravel kind of coming up, and that slow right. motion shot—that's really interesting. The big, you know, show stopping one is, of course, the, the fighter jets that are not like just episode four, five, six ones. Yeah, they're across, they're they're B wings. They're, they're B-wings, from yeah. the expanded universe. That's cool. But they're going across the desert, and there's like red ash coming out of them. Yeah, that's really a neat shot. And then all the stuff on the island—I just thought they shot it in a really interesting way. The best shot is probably. Ray is using the blue lightsaber But it's a really far off shot And yeah. you kind of see the whole island And her kind of doing that balletic Jedi thing With the blue lightsaber Just a lot of shots where it's like This does not feel like Star Wars 101 And I like that
1: out yeah, of this yeah, it, yeah for sure Like I will say as someone who you know Like personally did not enjoy like I, like I think Force Awakens is an okay movie But I didn't get a huge amount from it Like it is it, Watching this trailer did kind of remind me how much like that movie just did not stick with me in any really big way. That's like I enjoyed the characters and the performances from that movie. But like Ray and Finn and Poe have not stuck with me in a strong way. That when I see them I don't like have the strong reaction. That kind of reminded me. Th- and, and like also like seeing like you know you see TIE Fighters. You see AT-ATs. You see at least B-Wings are not something you've ever. I don't think they've been in the movies. Maybe they were in like episode 6. And like the big space battle scene at the end of there. But that's something I'm more familiar from like from the video games and stuff. So, But, like, seeing all that stuff, it just reminded me, like, ah, like, th- I do still wish that this post-Episode six era of Star Wars had been a bit more bold in terms of, like, the design stuff that they went for instead of being as safe as they ultimately went. As one of the millions who loved Poe and yeah. Ray and Finn, I found that really cool. And okay. I
0: love Ray as a character, and this uses... One of the cool things here is it got to use new Star Wars music. Yeah. So it's, the trailer starts with Luke's theme... Obviously, because it's got Luke in it. Um, But then it transitions into a really cool version of Ray's theme. And I definitely got a kick out of that. Because I loved that character and I loved that piece by John Williams. And I thought, that was neat of like, okay, this is the first of the new Star Wars trailers that isn't just using the music we already know. We're actually getting into, you know, they've established a new era here and we're getting into that. And I like that. I also, Mark Hamill just has such a phenomenal voice. Yeah. And that's one of the things I thought is like, Mark Hamill never got to play Luke with his awesome voice because he got his awesome voice after a little bit in episode six but mostly his awesome voice developed after he played Luke Skywalker and I am so excited to see grizzled Jedi Master Luke
1: yeah it's the number one thing I've been looking forward to from the Star, Star Wars movies like in the sense of like stuff that is familiar from the past I have just been wanting to see Mark Hamill be able to play Luke Skywalker again and they maybe wait that whole fucking movie and then they like tease you at the end and then finally it's like, okay, good. And it seems like nothing else, like their direction with Luke seems like it's, it's going to be interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, the, I love that part of it. Just, just yeah. And that last shot of him kind of leaving the cave is just a good shot. So Mark Hamill's cool. Yes, he's very cool. And uh, and I love that now you can you can hear the Joker in the things he says. Yeah, there like,
1: was a moment where I had to adjust and be like, right, right, okay, yeah, Mark Hamill. He also plays Luke Skywalker.
0: <laughs> he spent a lot more time playing the Joker in the intervening years, but he yes, he's yeah. also Luke Skywalker. So yeah, it looks cool, good trailer, and. Um, All the clickbait Go fuck yourself I wanted to shoot myself After I saw some of that Yeah It's it's the
1: world we live in Jonathan Yeah
0: No You cannot extrapolate That he is the big bad Of this movie From his last line You can extrapolate That they are probably Going with the common trope Of he's
1: old and sad And doesn't inherently Want to restart everything Yeah I think I'm going to Drop a light spoiler About this movie on you Guess what The Jedi aren't going to end Disney is not going to be like... There are never going to be any more Jedi... Going forward in the future of Star Wars... We're totally going to completely abandon... The like most iconic aspect of this entire franchise...
0: You're, so you're saying that the end of this movie... Won't be... Um, Kylo Ren... Having killed everyone, he has all their lightsabers in a bag, throws them in a pit, throws his own lightsaber in a pit, and then shoots himself in the head. That's yeah. not the end of this movie?
1: No, yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure there are going to continue to be Jedi in some form going forward in the future. Yes. That's, it's just a bold prediction, but I'm thinking the subtitle is a slight bit of misdirection. <laughs> or that he's the last Jedi at the moment. Yes. Because that is, that is
0: technically true at the start of this movie. Sure.
1: Right? But I mean, they also have lied before in that... and the end of episode 6, the Jedi did not in any way return. There, like, there was Luke. Yeah. There was Luke. Like, we have... In fact, you had the same number of Jedi... Like, Or you had one fewer Jedi at the end of Return of the Jedi... Than you had at the beginning of Return of the Jedi. Because you had Luke and Yoda at the beginning of Return of the Jedi. By the end, it's just Luke. So it's like... Not a totally like, accurate descriptor of the plot of that movie, Return of the Jedi. Do you think Revenge of the Jedi would have been a better title? Kind of. I, I kind of always with, wish they had gone
0: with that because it makes a bit more sense to Speaking me. Speaking of that, my favorite Star Wars poster has always been the original Revenge of the Jedi poster, yeah. which is the red Darth Vader thing. Uh, the first, this is not as good, but on that level, the poster, I'm just bringing it up now, the poster yeah. for The Last Jedi... Hold, they they did a number on that. That is a good poster.
1: Yeah, it's really good. I like that they you know it evokes a lot of sort of the classic Star Wars poster stuff without going like the full. Because at some point, while I really love that style of poster, like the Star Wars posters just get really crowded with like a hundred different characters' faces right. on it, and this has a nice like real minimalistic look to it. Yeah, I it looks cool. I'm
0: I'm excited for this movie. Yeah. So I also love the the red Star Wars title treatment that we're getting with the Last Jedi. Yeah, looks neat. So. Anyway, that we'll talk about that at the end of the year, uh, and that's it for news. That was a lot of news. Da, 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 da. Huh?
1: Yeah. Someday we'll get transition music. No, not this day. No. That, well, okay, maybe we'll just pull it from a Persona soundtrack. It's actually somewhat plausible. All right, Sean, you want to talk some Doctor Who? Let's talk about Doctor Who. Ah, uh,
0: I'm so happy we have we got to do this a little bit at Christmas. Yeah, we had a little, had bit, a little pre- bit with the return of Doctor Mysterio, which is a great episode. great episode. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Doctor Who has not been regularly on the air since December of 2015. Yeah. And that's a long gap. Uh, not the longest gap this show has experienced. <laughs> no,
1: no. There, there have been a few bigger ones in this history.
0: <laughs> yes, but uh nice long gap. Uh, and we are finally back for a momentous season, because this is the final season not just for Peter Capaldi, but for Stephen Moffat. Um, for basically the just the hierarchy that we've had since Russell T. Davies, yeah. who had Stephen Moffat as like the number two on the show. And we're going to have a clean break at Christmas, and we'll see what happens. But yeah, this is the start of
1: the end of something, and pretty good start. Yeah, because it's also the beginning of something new, because we are introduced to, like, really Peter Capaldi's second primary companion that he's had, because it's been Clara the whole time, and now we get Bill. Yep,
0: and actually, one of the things I was thinking about is that ...the first time he's actually gotten to initiate a companion... ...because Clara was a holdover. Um, You know, the 11th Doctor in his first episode also got Amy... ...which is pretty rare to start a companion with a new Doctor. Yeah. But they did that for, you know, in the 11th hour. And so, you know, the 11th Doctor kind of got to meet two companions, basically. But the 12th Doctor started with Clara... ...so this is the first time we've really gotten to see him, like, meet a companion... ...which is a really interesting thing. And, you know, the number one thing I will say for this episode, the pilot... ...is the thing I always want out of a new companion is I want them to be a good character, of course, but also to bring out a new side of the Doctor, something yeah. we haven't seen. And I think part of the problem with the introduction to Clara, which was the last, you know, companion introduction, she went on to be the best companion of the modern series. Yes. But it was a rocky introduction, and part of that is I think she and Matt Smith had interesting chemistry, but I don't think Moffitt or the directors or the performances quite had any idea of what does the 11th Doctor become with this person and I think Stephen Moffat has a much clearer endpoint point of, like, what does Bill tell us about the Doctor? How does the Doctor change with Bill? And I think it also helps that he took those two Christmas specials to not have a companion, re-explore the Doctor, and left a lot of time. Like, it feels like there's a missing three seasons or something right. where the Doctor was basically doing third Doctor stuff and just being on Earth, you know? Yeah,
1: there's, like, a big, big gap that, like, Big Finish Audio at some point in the future can come in and be like... Well, here we go. This is where we set all our stories.
0: Exactly. And that's wonderful. It also means that the companion introduction can just feel more natural and allows them to do this thing where this episode, sort of on the surface, is kind of like Rose, the first episode of the RTD years, where you have it very firmly from the point of view of the companion. Yeah. And so the Doctor is almost like a side story, side character in his own story. And I think it's a very different episode than Rose. I think Bill is a very different character than Rose. I don't quite get the comparisons people are making they're, I know they have like similar yeah. accents, but other than that, sure, yeah, I don't really. I think Bill's a very different character. Yeah, in part because she doesn't want to fuck the Doctor so far,
1: so far, so far. We'll see when how the Doctor regenerates, and then maybe we'll get a whole new side of the Doctor companion romance kind of thing they want to do in the show. Sometimes, anyway, where would you like to start talking about this episode? Um, I think like yeah, let's just keep on going with Bill, and I guess here's like one of the things I want to talk about because you know obviously i have my relationship with classic who and and i bring that to this show and there's something about this whole episode and about bill as a character that like i thought about since like we saw her in her costume in particular but it's also just a lot of the trappings and style of this episode is this reminds me a lot of the 7th doctor era and bill reminds me a lot of ace and that like I can this is that. She's a very sort of, like, obviously she's black and she's gay, and that's a part of who her character is, but also she's working class, and that's something you don't get all the time in Doctor Who. Oftentimes you get a more sort of, like, vaguely middle-classy kind of companion, like a Clara, like an Amy's, just sort of, like in that area and here like she's very much working class like she's working in the kitchen at this university like you know she lives in this very small apartment somewhere I assume in London and in that kind of stuff and she brings that very ace-like energy in that she is not traditionally educated in any like really significant way she's not smart in those kinds of ways in the way that you know like Clara was a fucking teacher you know like she was very educated and brought that Whereas, like... Clara was eventually a teacher. Clara was eventually a teacher. <laughs> she, she, was, she, was, she, was, she was, like, a live-in maid for a little bit, and it never really made sense, and there were those two kids that never, like... Who I assume died or something because they are never brought up again after Peter Cobaldi comes onto the show. But, like... At some point, Clara become When they figure out who Clara is, Clara is a teacher. Yeah. And so, like, you know, they have that kind of dynamic. And Ben, Bill very much has that sort of, like, instinctual curiosity that is something that is very important to a lot of Doctor Who companions. But it's also sort of, like, combined with... I think she has a certain... Almost naivety to her. Like, like she's willing to sort of accept things and question things and notice things that other people don't notice. And she And she just has that... And I think she's kind of willing to stick it to the doctor in that kind of way that feels like ace also she's got a dope jacket that has a bunch of uh, badges on it so that's very ace like absolutely well. dope her entire costume is fantastic yeah really good the, she's the got rainbow a rainbow shirt is, yeah she's just got a great selection of shirts across the whole episode
0: yeah no, she she's awesome um it, it's I, I definitely like that comparison and while i have not seen a ton of the seventh doctor era i actually agree with that because i think this kind of brings out a seventh doctor quality in peter capaldi yeah. of this guy who kind of loves to teach in the sense of not like he obviously does love to teach in terms of being at a whiteboard and stuff, yeah. but also just like being with someone who is intellectually curious, even if they are not all that learned, and he just revels in getting to show that person the world and have their curiosity bounce off of his immense intellect.
1: Yeah, and and having and sort of teaching her by like kind of leading her a couple of steps ahead and letting her figure out where she needs to go, and then in that process learned like discovers something that like the doctor didn't notice which is something that like lots of companions have that element but this feels like that's a lot more emphasized in that way that it was with ace and then there's just like a lot of small things of where you know for a lot of the episode and maybe potentially like in the future still if there's a slightly antagonistic element to their relationship in some places of that the doctor's not totally honest with her at the end of the episode he tries to mind wipe her and all that kind of stuff and that has that element of like you know the seventh doctor with the ace stuff He's very mysterious. He's sort of manipulating her in some ways that seem like, oh, he's sort of letting her figure out and sort of like, you know, learn about the world and better herself and not trying to get in the way of that. But then in other places, it feels like, is he just like straight up just fucking with her by taking Ace to like this house from her childhood that is kind of traumatic to her and stuff like that. There's that element of the antagonistic element of the relationship that feels like it's kind of here as well. And then on top of it, we have this like nice big juicy mystery that is, I like the setup here of the doctor you don't know why the doctor has been on earth for as long as he has you don't know why he's in this university all you know is there's this big ominous mysterious door somewhere in the basement of the university that he feels he needs to respect the to protect for some reason and i like that as a setup to a season that is like you know has enough directedness that you have a good idea of like okay obviously at the end of this season that door is going to open we'll see what's behind it and there's a nice little mystery there but it's not like the stupid oblique russell T. Davis like. Yeah, Bad Wolf, or hearing the word Torchwood on the wind at some point, Torchwood, and pretending that that is somehow building up some sort of big arc. I feel like this is a nice little entry point,
0: or to keep it within, like Stephen Moffat, for instance, it's not so unbelievably convoluted that it cannot be a satisfying conclusion. Yeah, a la the Doctor's death in season six, exactly.
1: Like it's just setting up this very simple, basic mystery. There is a door. The audience does not know what, behind, what is behind this door. The audience wants to know what's behind this door. And hopefully Moffat will be able to sort of skillfully tease, like every couple of episodes, what the Doctor's doing here and why he's here. Because obviously we're going to come back to this this place.
0: And I think talking about the status quo, even more important than that is that the mystery is ultimately just a MacGuffin, you know, yeah, yeah. as all these are. And really what it is is it's what, where's the Doctor's head at? Right. And I actually think we get a really good sense of that here, which is that, you know, he's got the photos on his desk... Of Susan and River. Yeah. He's thinking about loss. He seems to be kind of feeling his age. He has not been... Other than Nardole. Who's like his valet. And we'll talk about Nardole. Because I love that guy. Um, He's he's kind of been keeping to himself. He's teaching and enjoying that. But something has happened. And maybe it's just... The the years going by. Maybe it's what's ever behind that door. But he has kind of closed off. And I think it's a really interesting... And it closed off. But not in like that heightened theatrical way. That like Eleven was after... Uh, Amy and Rory went away And he's like right, up yeah. in the clouds Which was kind of interesting But then went nowhere
1: Yeah Because that was one of the Big missteps they made With Clara Where they had this great Episode The Snowman Where they introduced her And really built her up and you're like Oh I really like this character And then they kill her And you have to start over With a new Clara And you're like This it makes no sense From a narrative perspective of like, Or from like A writing perspective On why you'd spend All this effort Building this character Just to kill her And then reintroduce her With none of those memories
0: Right So Yeah no this it really does feel to me overall even though I think there's some messiness to the episode it feels like everyone is on board of like you know one where is the doctor at two who is Bill as a character and three why is this the right character for this doctor at this point in his life. Yeah and those are the questions you need to answer and I think if you compare this to like the introduction of Clara they kind of answered none of those questions all that well. And so those episodes were kind of rocky in terms of their relationship and other things, but you know they never really got to that point. I feel like we've already gotten to that point. Yeah. Of there's a lot left to learn. We don't actually even know a lot about Bill yet because mm-hmm. they didn't do a huge like exposition on her entire life story. Right. But we do definitely feel like I know what their relationship is at its foundation, and I'm really interested in following
1: it. And that's not an easy thing to do. So yeah. You know, kudos to the episode for doing that. Yeah, because like one of the other sort of. References I feel like Like sort of Overt Or, or like not overt Like vague references To the Seventh Doctor Era and that kind of Relationship Is that uh, Ace always referred to Or almost always referred to The Doctor as Professor For reasons I've never Really understood why She started doing that But they just decided That's what she's going to do And so she always Calls him Professor And it feels like More like later writers took that As a way to be like oh like that's how we can Kind of take this relationship Is that he's not just a doctor he's a Professor to her he's this man of Learning that is bestowing this knowledge Onto her and this knowledge of like the larger world And universe to her in some ways and that's Why she's calling him professor it was not like That at all in her original introduction But that's where the writers sort of took it eventually And while she you know she never Really calls uh, the doctor Professor in this episode Bill It does have that sort of relationship because he is literally a professor in this episode, and he is her tutor, and that feels like that is like the you know the seed from which their relationship will sprout into the future, where he's you know starts as her just like normal tutor, and now she he's her awesome like space tutor, right? And I love that this episode is not the
0: the, the typical Doctor companion thing where they meet just fighting a monster, right? Yeah. There's actually a huge it, the, the, it's not a lot of time in the episode, but it's a lot of time for the two characters of months go by. ...between, you know, she first notices him... ...because she just goes to his lectures... ...she's not even a student... ...she just finds them interesting... Yeah. ...and then he recognizes her in the crowd... ...and calls her into his office... ...which is where the episode technically starts... ...and then they start doing these, like... ...little tutoring sessions together... ...because they just kind of enjoy each other's company... ...and he wants to teach... ...and she wants to learn... ...and then eventually it turns into... ...kind of a monster of the week style thing... ...but I like that there's that distance... ...where by the time they're actually, like... ...fighting the bad guys this week... ...Bill and the Doctor know each other... Yeah. ...and Bill realizes she doesn't know a lot about the Doctor... But the Doctor also realizes he doesn't know a lot about Bill. And it's an interesting dynamic that I think... I really love kind of the first 20 minutes of this episode, even if I think they're a little rushed. But there's just something so kind of wistful and beautiful about this kind of passing of the seasons and these two characters just getting to know each other, not in a typical Doctor Who fashion at all.
1: Yeah, yeah, like you said, they don't have the immediate trial by fire, which is how you typically introduce a companion. It is, like, even if the audience is not with them for that whole journey, there's, like, that implied relationship that they get over time... That does like it, It's one of the things that makes it really interesting When she starts discovering that there's more to this guy Because she has this pre-existing relationship with him And it's not just like Oh you seem kind of weird Oh why you're kind of weird is you're an alien It's like you seem kind of weird One year later Oh you're weird because you're an alien So much stuff makes sense now You know it's a very different effect Yeah and you know
0: I watched the episode Rose recently Because uh, I was re-watching the, the Chris Eccleston season right. And that's a good episode and I I you know that episode had a very very tough job in that it was literally reintroducing Doctor Who to the world. Yeah. And so it has a lot of masters to meet. But this I do think took kind of that concept of a companion POV intro and ran with it even better because in that episode once Rose meets the Doctor it's kind of all about him. It's all about the mystery of the Doctor. And, like, the specific enemy in that one, it's the it's the Autons. Yeah. You know, which is, I like the Autons in that It's, it's a
1: really bold choice to bring, the, bring Doctor Who back with the Autons, and I love that. No, it's great.
0: But, like, it kind of, even though it's Rose's POV, it ceases being her story. Right. What I love about this episode is that... Bill's wants and desires drive every step of the story and the doctor is not necessarily incidental in that but he's almost incidental like it is what Bill kind of wants and desires out of the world that drives this story both thematically and narratively and that makes it much more focused and interesting especially as something that is not a literal entry point to the whole series but just like a reintroduction point.
1: Uh, makes it very poignant to me I mean, There's a lot of nice poignant moments in this episode Yeah because it's the sort of thing where she doesn't um, Like it's not just like the doctor Gets like sort of wrapped up into the mystery By coincidence because he just happens to be there When supernatural shit is going down She very like at multiple points over the episode And obviously like near the end where like it's getting intense And she really needs his help But multiple points she's going to him with questions Asking him about this stuff And it is much about more about her very specifically seeking his guidance instead of it just like him guiding her because he just happens to be there in the way it was with like rose yeah
0: so let's talk about bill being gay because this is i, I love how they did this you yeah. know it it is a plot point that she is has a crush on this girl but that's that's all it is like it's not they have they stop and it's like the doctor's like you're gay that's right, interesting yeah. like there's none of that and you know Times change and everything but if you look at like the Russell T Davies episodes they often did some moments like that and because it was the mid 2000s and because there were not these kind of representations on TV at the time it did the show did often kind of have to stop in its tracks especially if you follow over to Torchwood and see some of that you know and and so a lot of that I'm not blaming the show for that back then but it is nice that we can evolve to this point where our you know new de facto main character can be gay, and that's just part of her character and part of the episode. But it's not anything more than that. It's just a. It, in fact, the main crux of her story is really sweet, and gender doesn't so much matter with it. It's just yeah. she has a crush on this person, and it. I also like the control in that it doesn't develop into more than that. It's not like this is a grand love story. Moffat tries to weave in forty five minutes. Yeah, it's just this this crush and this flirtation, and then this possibility at the end. And her having to kind of literally come down to earth. Yeah. Um, I think the overall arc of that with Bill. And that the episode is pretty laser focused on following that journey for her. There are a lot of really touching moments in there. Because it feels very human. And of course when you broaden the scope. And get specific in different representations of humanity. It also it just feels more specific to every viewer too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. One of my favorite parts about it was that they did not try to make it a true love kind of story. Because it is just... It's a very relatable, like, oh, you just met this person, you're both kind of attracted to each other, you're kind of flirting around, and then you have, like, this imagination of, like, oh, like, like all the places this relationship could go, who knows in the future, and then having to cut that off at the end because it's, you know, for whatever, like, reason you want to, like, read into that or, like, just literally in the story because she was consumed by oil from an alien engine tank. You know, whatever metaphor you want to read into that is you can read into that, but it is a very relatable sort of normal college fling kind of thing. And I also am interested in the future if her being gay like how that might affect her like the sort of subtle dynamic between her and the doctor because you know there's even when they don't want to ever imply it there's tends to be some amount of sexual tension even in the classic Doctor Who between the doctor and the companion sometimes it's because the doctor literally married or the actor playing the doctor literally married the woman playing the companion. Sometimes it's just because, you know, John Pertwee was the sexiest man on earth, and there's no way not to read sexual chemistry between him and every other person on screen. But like, Especially him and the Brigadier Man. Exactly. Yes, exactly. I have some fan fiction you should read after we record this podcast. Read it on the air, why not? <laughs> no, it's not, it's not for public consumption. Which doctor, it's just for me.
0: Which doctor married a companion? Uh,
1: that know. was Tom Baker. He married okay. Lala Ward. Who I was, knew that. Uh, right. Yeah, the regenerated version of Romana. Forget about it's, that it's, it's, it's there's a lot you can read into that because, like when she comes back there's actually a weird connection between that and this episode in that uh the whole part where they go to the daleks if the daleks are fighting some like weird like dudes with white dreads those are the mavelins which is a direct reference to destiny of the daleks which is i think romana the like second romana's first uh story and there's a weird dynamic of that story where all of a sudden her costume, and I kind of love it, and it's also kind of weird, her costume is just a white and pink version of the fourth Doctor's costume, and it's like this really big change in how that character looks. It's, it's a weird thing. It's not a very good episode. But, you know. Steven Moffat likes to cut deep. He does! This, this episode, it has some of the most dense fucking classic Doctor Who references I've ever seen, from like... You know, obviously, there's the obvious stuff of like Susan's picture on the desk, and then you have like all the sonic screwdrivers, but there's even like a Marie Celeste sign in the basement. Which is a, like, very vague... I take it as being a very vague reference to... I think it was Time Chase in the first Doctor era. Where the Doctor and his companions ended up fighting Daleks on the Marie Celeste. Which is, like, a famous lost ship in history. And that sign is just... Like, it's all over the place. You have the Mavellans and the Daleks fighting. It's ridiculous in this episode. But none of them get in the way. Which I thought was good. It is interesting to trace the
0: arc of, like, Modern Who. Even though the first episode had the Autons. Generally... Modern Who for a while was pretty reluctant to directly engage with Classic Who, and, yeah. and very directly did things like the Time War, so they didn't have to in some cases. And I feel like as the Moffat years have gone by, he's really relished in engaging more and more with it, even if it's on these very subtle levels. Yeah, yeah. But no, that was fun. So we're, we we got off on a tangent here, but we were talking yeah. about you know Bill's sexuality. Yeah, yeah. That's a cool part, and you're right. It will be interesting to see how that affects things going forward because Peter Capaldi is a fairly asexual doctor. Yeah, but no one is completely as you say. So. Yeah, no, but, I mean, they definitely, right off the bat, their relationship is very different than his and Clara's for a, n- a number of reasons. Yeah. And it just brings out different shades to that performance, and I love that. I mean, talk about Peter Capaldi for a minute. He has yeah. some... It's not even his episode, but he has some great moments in it. You know, uh, the the one where, I forget the exact line, but something where they get, the, the first scene in the TARDIS and no it's it's actually later than that but when he says um, yes it's also a time machine his like delivery of that line and the glee and relish he has in it is just beautiful
1: yeah that's yeah that's a really fantastic sort of series of scenes where they're like it's, it's such a brilliant way to introduce the TARDIS to this new character and potentially to people watching Doctor Who for the first time of just like slowly going through all the different things that it can do and yeah it culminates in him being like oh and yeah it's a time machine it's like fucking yeah like it's just like it's a mic drop moment for the doctor for sure and that is
0: a malcolm tucker moment from the thick. that is him knowing just he he could be bigger with it but he's like yeah it's also a time machine that's him being a shit and it's awesome yeah it's really good it's great
1: you know he's just really happy because he hasn't been able to do this in a very long time because he's been stuck on earth for so long he finally gets to introduce someone new to the tardis which is like probably if you follow the history of doctor who it's maybe the doctor's number one favorite thing to do ever (laughs) is just to introduce people to the tardis in different ways he clearly thinks about it a lot which is more a like reference or more as a a result of the writers having to write like hundreds of these fucking scenes where characters are introduced to the tardis for the first time so they have to get creative about it which ultimately creates this effect of like the doctor is always thinking about the next time i'm gonna try this because this will be fucking awesome it's great and i think him having nardo to play off of
0: yeah makes it even better because he usually doesn't have anyone to play off of but Nardole is equally in on the joke yeah and it's great I mean the line where they're like this is taking her a while yeah. isn't it <laughs> that's wonderful like I even love the intimation that maybe he and Nardole have done this together before yeah you know and we just didn't see those people but yeah it's great uh that TARDIS introduction scene also has the crane shot of her going through the door and we crane all the way out to see the entire set in like a 30 second long take yeah and then all the lights come on
1: it's yeah yeah, it's really great it's again it just feels like that TARDIS set is so amazing it just inspires the best in every single director that comes onto the show they like see that set and they're like fucking yeah like we can do something awesome with this set And
0: I overall actually didn't even really like the direction in this episode. I thought it was way too frantic early on. And it felt like Sherlock direction in a couple points where it was a little too up its own ass. But that scene, they calmed down, did just a great little piece of filmmaking. And I loved it there. Yeah. Yeah. so, yeah, that was, that was something else.
1: Yeah, it, it definitely it helps sort of convey, even to someone who's obviously insanely familiar with the concept of what the TARDIS is, it does like put it into perspective of starting in on that really tight shot where if you uh, someone who didn't know what Doctor Who was, you would, could just look at that screen and be like, oh, yeah, like they're in a box together because of how tightly it's shot, and then just slowly pulling back until like, you realize, oh, right, like, there's no way a box would be this big, and then all the lights come on. It's like... That's really yeah. cool. It's, it's great. And uh, Pearl Mackey is yeah. really good. Yeah. Like, what a find.
0: She is great in this. And I think uh, she's at her best in some of those moments of just kind of joy and wonder. Because she always kind of, you know, you, you know how these scenes go when someone sees the yeah. TARDIS and what they say. And both through the writing but also her performance, she kind of zigs when you expect her to zag in those moments. Yeah. of Like, she is in awe at this thing, but she's not in awe at it for the reasons you or I might be. Yeah. You know or that we expect companions to be like is, is this a kitchen you know yeah. something like that or you know where's the bathroom which is a
1: you know a weird thing to ask but when you think about it a very practical thing to ask about the tardis you yeah know, no you've you got know it's a never-ending question does the doctor have to use the bathroom maybe he does maybe he doesn't who knows maybe the bathroom's only there for the companion's convenience. Yes. Yeah.
0: Maybe there's bunk beds in the in the bathrooms too cuz he seems to
1: like those. We can only assume. <laughs> but yeah, it is definitely it's a cool character trait of Bills that Pearl Mackey expresses very well of that she is very observant but she also like notices like I said, it's sort of like the unexpected element in the scene of like she notices stuff like how the TARDIS's acronym is in English and that doesn't even if it's translating it doesn't really make sense because how does that just work out that way right exactly
0: it's kind of interesting that they make the whole time and relative dimension and space like line into something in this episode yeah and, that and I like it be it's not just like Doctor Who it's a yeah it's an actual thematic thing in the
1: episode and it makes sense why the doctor would be saying it in a way that like him saying Doctor Who all the time is just obnoxious it's like no because also you have to just remind the audience every now and then because there have to be a lot of people who watch the show that never end up seeing like the one or two episodes where they actually tell you what TARDIS stands for because it's a very rare instance every once in a while you just have to remind people yeah it does stand for something it's time and relative dimension and space yes no
0: I liked all of that um, did you like Stephen Moffat eschewing his worst instincts and doing a Doctor What instead of a Doctor Who?
1: Yeah, I, it's acceptable. It's yeah. acceptable. It, you know, it did
0: not feel anywhere near as forced as like the nadir of season 7 where people were just shouting it out like they were coughing.
1: Yeah, there's like that one scene in I think it's what the Bells of St. John where it's said like five times in 30 seconds and it's just like my brain melted. Yeah, no, this this felt...
0: It also like... For Pearl Mackie, it's actually a good introduction to Bill knowing what we know about her later in the episode. That she looks at things from a different perspective. Yeah. Having her say Doctor What in that moment is a nice little kind of intro to the, the character. Yeah. Um, because that first scene, again, is really more about her than it is about him. But yeah. Um, where else do we want to go with this?
1: Uh, let's talk about the monster a little bit. Because I, I, I like am. that part of the episode a lot. I did it, too. It, it's something that, you know, Doctor Who has a million episodes like this. That's like the Monster of the Week kind of episode. And and oftentimes, like, it's executed, like, acceptably, but not in any way that feels exceptional. It's one of the things about, like, Series 9 that was so good was it felt like you had episodes like uh, Before the Flood and Under the Lake and all that stuff that, that were like, oh, this could be a normal episode of Doctor Who and just, like, an average one, but it's executed at such a high level that it feels fresh and feels interesting. And, like, this is not quite as good as those episodes, but it has... This a level of execution and like sort of ingenuity with the monster and everything that feels like, yeah, like you captured something about the sort of suspense of having this creature like stalking you in a way that a lot of doctor who episodes tend to not be able to get that element. And it felt like I said at the top of this episode, it felt very x Filesy in a way to me that it's really good. Mm-hmm. Like it's, Not full blown horror, but it's just enough horror like listen or something like that that it like kind of gets you. In particular the scene in the bathroom I saw was really well executed. That's a very cliche kind of scene of, oh, you know there's someone in the house, there's someone in the bathroom and you like move the shower curtain and there's no one there. It's like you've seen that scene in a million horror movies, but then having the person be in the drain in the shot of the pupil in the drain is like That's like, that's what makes this. Like, that's it's that little extra step of I've never seen a shot like that. Like, I've never seen this scene I've seen a million times before. I've never seen it culminate quite this way. And that's all you really need to make it feel that little extra bit special.
0: Yeah, you know, I I don't think the monster was my favorite part of this episode, but it might be the most impressive part of this episode, like on a creative level because. They manage to introduce a... This is not a returning Doctor Who monster. This is a new monster. They manage to introduce it, tell a good story that ties in thematically with the companion and the Doctor. That allows them those gaps where they can do the normal kind of exposition you need with these. While still maintaining all that suspense. That's a really high wire act to be walking, yeah. you know. Um, very much kind of remind. I don't think this episode is executing at quite the same level. But reminds me of like the high wire act of like the 11th hour sure, or something. Yeah. Of You're balancing a lot of different plates at the same time. And this did this well. And honestly, my favorite thing about the monster... And there's a lot to like. I love the design. I love how it follows them to the ends of the universe. Yeah. And then the Doctor's like, fuck it. We're going to go you know, to the end of the of existence itself because I can. Fuck yeah. it. And that's what we're going to see. That's a, the ultimate test. And it, it appears right away. And that's all great. But what I really liked is that even by the end of the episode, we never really find out what that monster is. Mm-hmm. The Doctor never like magically just knows everything about it. It's just... They kind of work on some assumptions... And then it disappears... And there's not even an intimation that like... This is the big bad of the season... It's just like... Like we've got with like... uh, The silence in season six or something... It's just... It was a cool monster of the week... And the reason it's as cool as it was... Is because we never really knew anything about it... Yeah... And that just shows like a level of self-restraint... I respect a lot... Not just for Doctor Who... But any show like this...
1: Yeah... And, And like on top of it... The like... Just the production design with it... Was really well done... When they had to do the handful like... CG shots they did of it like melting and reforming like those worked well it's something you know like terminator 2 is like a good foundation upon which to build your special effects yes and it's like there are a lot of very terminator 2-esque special effects with with the water lady in this one and also just like you know there's a lot of there's a good little undercurrent of kind of like a J horror vibe with like you know the woman with like dripping wet with like the hair in front of her face that's just like There's a little bit of iconography there that is pretty unique for Doctor Who that doesn't really quite get into that territory in terms of, like, the horror stuff, and so it's just those little tiny elements that make it feel unique and interesting enough that it was a part of the episode that I very, like, distinctly enjoyed, whereas in, like, a lot of Doctor Who episodes, that's just kind of, like, the thing that happens and you don't really pay attention to it because it's like every, you know, Doctor Who episode has to have a random monster, like in the... I can't remember the name of the episode off the top of my head, but the Series 9 episode with the lion dude, and, you know, you have the... I'm that is, that the, is yeah. before the flood under the lake. No, no, the no, not the giant... Not the Fisher King. I would never forget the Fisher King. Oh, okay. The lion dude in the middle... That's the the woman who lived That's the name of the okay, episode Okay yeah yeah And it's just like The most forgettable Monster in the world Because like a Doctor Who episode Just needs to have a monster Like there are a lot of Doctor Who episodes That do that And I just noticed About this one That's like no Like Stephen Moffat Really went the extra mile And like the production crew Went the extra mile To make this monster Like interesting and memorable
0: Even though I think it's notable This is clearly A pretty low budget episode Yeah Because like The only real effect Is the CGI When it reforms Otherwise It's an actress in makeup And splashed with a lot of water Yeah Uh, A lot of the big suspense pieces are the Doctor and Bill staring at a puddle, you know, like, none of the big things in this episode were clearly, like, all that uh, expensive to pull off, they just took creativity and ingenuity, and that's often when something like this is at its best, and so I liked a lot of, like, when I realized, like, oh, right, like, half this episode is them in a parking lot looking at a puddle, that's not expensive, that's just good i mean i said i didn't like some of the direction that is good direction and yeah. that is good acting and that is good writing
1: i mean that that is 100 percent what dr who needs to be is extracting as much tension you possibly can out of the scene of two people staring at a puddle on the ground
0: yes that kind of goes to the core of. yeah yeah you, you couldn't make an episode like heaven sent out of
1: that but
0: you can do a good standard dr who episode yeah for sure yeah absolutely so no good stuff there um Yeah I I think where I most felt like the press of like this episode felt like it needed to be a little longer was mostly in the early scenes where it really felt like we raced through a lot of the intro to Bill like I would have liked a more standard scene maybe with her working making the chips or something or at home just I actually I liked kind of the kaleidoscopic effect of we saw a lot of it at once. But I think even within that you could have slowed down just a little bit to get more of a sense of that. And then a couple scenes around the middle where it felt maybe a little too breathless for its own good.
1: Yeah for me it was definitely like I agree with the beginning of like I really loved the whole idea of that scene. Especially with like the Doctor explaining like what if time was like this and it like, was like this city. And showing you all these scenes of their lives like I thought that was really well done. But needed to have a couple of more sequences in there that like breathed a bit more that sort of like let you... Rest in those moments For just a little bit longer And then the other part Where I felt like The sort of like Pacing fatigue the most was I think When they go to the Dalek ship And like that's like a step A little extra step Too far of like You like This is too much Having to try to Sort of have the Doctor And Nardole explain What Daleks are And like doing all of that It's like it feels like You don't quite need to do this Like you should have found like a Like kind of smaller scene to continue the previous scene And conclude it there instead of like Going this extra step and having this whole other Sequence sort of built around the Dalek stuff Felt like you could have cut that out And made a much like sort of better paced Conclusion if you didn't have to do all that there
0: yeah I understand why they did it And I liked the scene overall But I probably agree with that on Yeah it's level.
1: a good yeah. scene But like it's It would have been better If they had like cut it And re- wrote something else in Because it felt like There's a great scene That doesn't need to be here Yeah but no it was It was yeah There was some interesting stuff Throughout
0: and Yeah the pacing issues Here and there But those definitely Receded my memory Over yeah. time of, of overall I walked away from that episode Feeling like You know this is not on par I think with the most Recent four or five episodes of Doctor Who because those were the conclusion to like big emotional long arcs. And so I don't think this could be on that level. But I don't think Doctor Who has lost any spring in its step in the year away. Like this felt very much a qualitative continuation of what we've been getting.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's a kind of episode that has a lot that it needs. Like it just has a lot of narrative work to work through by introducing Bill and and, then reintroducing the Doctor and and Gnardle, the concept of the TARDIS and that sort of universe and all that stuff. And so it's going to have. It's probably going to have some pacing issues here and there. Like, the only episode that was able to do that and feel like amazing is 11th hour. Like, yeah. And so you're not going to have. 11th hour is
0: also 65 minutes long.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's like you're not going to have that every single time you're introducing a new season, a new companion. And so this is like, for New Hue, this is like one of the best companion introductions there's ever been. Like, it's probably right below 11th hour.
0: I would also put Smith and Jones. I really love sure.
1: um, Martha's first episode
0: because that's also our first one with what are the the Jadoon? Yes, yeah. uh, and it's on that like hospital that gets moved to the moon. I really like that's one of my favorite Tenet episodes. And I would put this kind of on par. I think this is Bill is probably a more interesting character than Martha, but I, I
1: like this is kind of similar to me. I, this that's one episode I kind of thought of with this. Sure, yeah, I can see that they they, they definitely I would say they sit in sort of a similar qualitative space.
0: Yeah, so. Yeah, it's easy. I just—it's always easy to get distracted by the Moffat years. There's good stuff in RTD too, so I like to yeah. go back to that when I can. Um, yeah, no, this was good. A couple other things to talk about. Right, Nardole is so great. He is. I love Matt Lucas. We talk a lot about you know moments where in a Doctor's performance you can see all twelve Doctors. Right. You know. Yeah. This is a weird thing Where with Nardole I can see Matt Lucas Being a B valet For every single doctor Sure It's yeah. a weird thing Where he does not feel Super specific to Peter Capaldi I could see him being with David Tennant Or with Tom Baker Or with John Pertwee Or any of them Just like As this weird dude On the side Who the doctor keeps around Because he's just a nice dude who knows the, the, the ropes, you know Yeah,
1: like there's something about Nardole's ability to just roll with every single thing that gets thrown at him Which is like a big part of uh, the return of Doctor Mysterio as well And and it's a really interesting character that I feel like you just have never really seen characters like that that much Like you, there's a little bit of that in Romana There's a little bit of that in Turlo was a fifth Doctor companion But in general, the people traveling with the Doctor are like mystified by at least a little bit of what the doctor is doing and Nardal just takes every single thing in stride and there's something really really hilarious about that
0: yeah I don't know if you know Bill will be in the next season that totally depends on where her arc is going and all sorts of things I kind of hope they keep Nardole with the next doctor because that's a continuity I would just love to see yeah of Nardol. because that just his reaction to a regeneration I need to see that I yeah. need that to be him at least in like the premiere of the next and whatever Chris Chival is planning, please do something with Matt Lucas. Yeah,
1: and even if like you can't keep him around forever, like it would be great to have him just pop up in the future in random places and just be like, hey Nardole what's up? It's like, oh hey. It's just like what's happened since then? Eh who cares? Let's just have a fun adventure and then fall go my we'll go our separate ways. Now.
0: I was very happy when we got the opening credits and it's you know,
1: Peter Capaldi, Pearl Mackey and
0: Matt, Matt Lucas. Lucas, and I'm like, he's in the opening credits. Yeah. Yes,
1: like there's almost an element to his character that is like such the sort of like funny, weird sidekick guy. That I was kind of hoping he would have his own tiny credits face, like in the corner <laughs> next to Peter Capaldi's credits face that comes in in the, the like cloud and the stars, like just a little way, because it feels like he you, should be there.
0: You remember that it's the season eight finale when they did that weird thing where Clara got the credits face? Yeah. I want them to do that with Nardole. Like, yes. full-on flip it, and Nardole gets credits face, and he's just grinning, and yeah. that'd be great. Yeah. yeah. No. Uh, yeah, so that was good. Uh, in terms of speculation stuff, Right, um, where do we think they're going with some of this? Because they set up a couple things here. I think the one... I, I'm less interested in the door, because who knows where they're going with that. Yeah. The one they keep going to, and this could totally just be thematic, but you never know. Mm-hmm. The Susan thing is yeah. not just in the background. They put her picture up to the camera.
1: Yes. Yeah. Do we think they're doing anything with that? I hope so. Like, I've wanted... Like, I feel like that is one story thread, story thread from classic Doctor Who that feels so, like, just hanging there. That there's so much you could do with that. And it feels like, take the opportunity while you have it and, like, like, like do it. Like, you don't... Like, it doesn't have to be the biggest thing in the world. I would just really, like, think it would be cool to bring her back into Doctor Who... In a small way, at the very least. And, like, like address that a little bit. Because there's so much you could do with that character. Fuck. Even if it's just... It leads to a ten-minute
0: monologue by Peter Capaldi... Yeah. On his regeneration deathbed or something. That would be worth it. I mean, I would love to see the character, too. But, like... Yeah. And I... The one fan theory I saw, and then I was like, I'm not looking at fan theories because they pissed me off, is that Bill is Susan. I'm like, fuck oh, off. And th-
1: th- people have said that about literally every single companion since Susan left the like, of Earth. Like, you can find people fucking in, like, archived internet from 2005 talking about how Rose is obviously must be Susan in disguise. Because look at all this shit in all these episodes. Of course it's Susan regenerated and lost her memory. It's so obvious. I don't know how nobody noticed it. Yeah, no,
0: I don't think they're going there. And I, I mean, I'm
1: still holding up that I'm pretty sure that Missy is actually Susan. I, I think, like, Moffat is really playing the long game on that one. It's either Missy is actually Susan, or the Weeping Angels have always collectively been Susan, as, like, her consciousness split off into stone fragments that scattered across time and space. I think it's really obvious, if you pay attention to the blink, that's really what he's been saying all along.
0: All right, so we, we mentioned Susan. Um, the river thing is just... Obviously, there's a reason he has a river yeah, there, and yeah. I, that's what's point. I, I think... There has been this nice mini-arc where those two Christmas specials feel like parts of a season we didn't see. Yeah. Where he was, like, dealing with the outfall of River Song. And I kind of... I would not have necessarily said I needed that. But the way they've executed on that has been really good.
1: Yeah, it does feel like... You know, some of that River Song storyline could get, like, a bit rocky in places. But I do really love how it's sort of settled. And it does, like, when you see that picture of Alex Kingston on his desk, it, like, did leave me, like, a really warm feeling. And it they, felt right yeah. in a way that a couple of years ago, like, like around the time Peter Capaldi was coming in, I maybe wouldn't have felt like, ah, like, that would not feel right for the character. If, Here, like, it feels appropriate. If Eleven had that, it'd yeah. be weird. But mm-hmm. they... they... I mean, they stuck the landing with her very well yeah. in that episode, in the, the, the Husbands of River Song. So like, It's yeah. kind of crazy to think that, that like the 12th Doctor and River Song only had that one episode together because it feels like they had so much more together. It's more
0: memorable than all of the Eleven and River interactions
1: combined in yeah, a weird
0: way. It's true. But, and, and Eleven and River had a lot of good stuff, but they also had a lot of extraneous stuff. Yeah. So anyway, um, and then th- it got weird also with her being Amy's daughter and yeah, whatever. Right? We forget all yeah, this things. Yeah, Melody. Yeah, anyway. Um, good times and bad times. This was a mostly good time. So do you have anything to think about with the door? Is
1: I just think it's a good... like. I If you're going to have like your, the beginning of your season set up some kind of story arc that's going to get executed on at some point, I think this is one of the most elegant ones I've seen New Doctor Who do, which is not saying a lot because I think... In general, New Doctor Who has been pretty bad about that stuff. Like, Season 5 is a pretty huge outlier in regard to that stuff. And then Season 9 is another outlier in that it didn't overtly try to do any of that stuff, but had a really strong thematic core that ran throughout the whole season. But it was not a sort of, like, literal story plot that continued. It was just sort of the ideas that the season was working over. And here, like... I am totally welcome to having, like, a small plot thing that builds up over the course of the season and culminates in your big season finale. I think that's totally fine. I just want it to be executed well. And so far, it seems like it has started off on a good foot. And there's nothing about this that seems like it's going to, like, blow up in the show's face by the time this season, like, gets around to its conclusion.
0: No, and, you know, honestly, I could even see this might not even be a we're waiting to the finale like sure because both the doctor and Nardole know what's in there and that's two-thirds of the TARDIS crew I could see that kind of like the cracks in the universe you find out what they are in season five like midway through yeah I could see them doing something like that again sure yeah and I think if you look at the writers list Moffat has like he's got the premiere he's at the finale and one in the middle so maybe that's who knows yeah who knows but yeah um, which that episode is titled Extremis Which just makes me think it's an Iron Man crossover
1: Yeah or that, that, that really sounds like a Big Finish adventure Like that's, <laughs> that, that might almost actually be a Big Finish adventure That sounds so familiar as one of those Maybe it's an audio episode Dude, Who knows yeah. like fuck it you know Moffat has written so many Doctor Who episodes I'm sure he wants to really stretch his muscles <laughs> Yes
0: Maybe that's what he's doing when he's done He's just going to go right for Big Finish
1: Dude yeah maybe he just can't help himself It's yeah. like Doctor Who's such a part of who he is now he needs to write it. He just needs to write one he's, Doctor Who story every six months or he dies he 's more Doctor Who now than man <laughs> exactly yeah,
0: <laughs> yes anyway. good start to the to the season. Um, I mean, one other thing I would say is this is so impossible to talk about because we know Peter Capaldi is leaving, yeah. Did you feel any of that in this episode? Because I thought I did a little bit of, like, just some of the wistfulness early on. Yeah. And that they kind of let him even more kind of play the age. Like, that scene where he's kind of slumped in his chair with the Christmas hat and stuff. I kind of felt like maybe they're building up to this more knowingly than than when they did, like, for Eleven or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I definitely got that sense, too. And it is really hard to tell how much of that is just because you know the news already and you're just reading into it or not. But it does I think it's specifically it was having Susan's picture on the table like that's what made it feel like he's sort of and and like having that and having implied so much about like how much time has passed since the last time we saw the doctor and then how much time was implied past the last time we saw the doctor from the last time we saw him before that one that feels like there's something appropriate about even if we haven't seen all of his adventures there's a sense of he has had all of these adventures and he's getting near that, that end of his life. And this is a version of the Doctor that does feel like he would be very sort of reflective about his past. Like yeah. getting to that stage in his regeneration.
0: And you know this uh,
1: this episode has a lot of new stuff
0: to it. But it does not... It, my only worry was that it might feel like season 7 Doctor Who.
1: Yeah where it's where, like oh we have the new opening credit sequence and the new TARDIS set and all that stuff. New and, costume. Yeah. And then, and then, then just, Matt Smith left. Yeah exactly. And And this does not feel... This feels
0: more knowing and like yeah. purposeful. And that's better because you don't want it to be as whiplashy as it can get, as it did with 11.
1: Yeah, I do also like thinking about costume stuff. I did really love that he has both the different styles of the uh, Twelfth Doctor outfits in this one. That it's like for most of the episode, he has the more like raggedy Doctor thing of like when he's a professor, and then when you get into the TARDIS, he changes into his nice coat. And I I like that he has both those modes that he's now switching between. That feels I, very appropriate. I like that he dresses up for the alien hunt, not for teaching a class. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like when he's teaching a class, like whatever. Like I'm gonna just like hang out in my office and play electric guitar. When he's going to yeah. go chase after this alien puddle, that's when I need to put the nice waistcoat on.
0: Boy, I also, I've, I, I always get this vibe because these, are, these two actors look and sound similar. I got a Hugh Laurie vibe from some of this. Him specifically sure. being a professor and all that just made me think of like Dr. House or something. And again, like, I know it would be similar. I still in my heart of hearts want Hugh Laurie Doctor at some point. <laughs> Maybe not the next one. Yeah. But there's just something like, we've seen Capaldi do it, I just kind of want that other actor of that same generation to take a swing at it. Sure. I don't know. But, I mean, we've talked about it before, maybe no one else of that age range at the moment can do it after
1: Capaldi, but... they probably need to sort of, like, cast against Capaldi, then, go for something similar, but... But we we will see. I mean, they have not shot the Christmas special yet, I don't think,
0: but they're going to have to soon, obviously, so we're going to hear who the new Doctor is. I'm kind of surprised we haven't yet. But they probably didn't want to overshadow the premiere. Yeah. But, I mean, during the course of this season we'll
1: have to know because they're not going to be able to keep it secret once they're shooting the episode you know so yeah. i'm just looking forward to the next doctor clearly obviously being susan like it's <laughs> what the whole show has been building through the whole time i think is really no obvious
0: susan point. was the doctor's last regeneration
1: and it's a time thing exactly yes yeah. yeah like yes no the next season of he regenerates into susan and the next season of doctor who is the first season of doctor who from the perspective of susan that you now know to actually be the 13th doctor slash the 14th doctor Who's hanging out with Like and it's just All this technology stuff With like putting them Into the scene With William Hartnell And like archival footage It's gonna be great They finally make Marco Polo Exactly yeah They've, that's, they've, they've actually been Slowly animating that one In the background <laughs> And like waiting For this moment
0: Chris Chibnall is gonna go Meta as shit with this I'm looking forward to it Alright uh, Doctor Who is good You know what else is good? Uh, pizza Pizza's really good Pizza's very good I had pizza yeah, is pretty good Pizza's very good yeah. What else
1: is good? John. Uh, Persona Five. Oh yeah, that is pretty good. You know, you get a pizza, you play Persona Five. That's a good night. It's a very good night. Maybe if you also if you get a pizza, you watch Doctor Who, and then you play Persona Five. That's a, that's a fantastic night. That's a fantastic night. Uh, I've had a lot of fantastic nights playing Persona Five. So have I. Like, this is like, a good like, game. Yeah. Even on my second playthrough, like I have gotten sucked in pretty hard at this point. To recap, yes, we like Persona
0: Five. You can listen to last week's episode for generalities on why we yeah. like it. Last week we spoke in spoiler depth about, uh, we didn't get that deep into it because we were talking about a lot of different things, but we talked about the first two arcs of the game. So basically the first two palaces, the Kamoshida Palace and the Matarame Palace. This week I have gotten to around like the 47 to 50 hour mark, depends on how you're playing it, and uh, you've gotten to around the same place and that roughly aligns to end of August and we have done the third palace, which is the uh, Kanashiro Palace and the fourth palace, which uh, I don't even want to spoil it yet Because yeah. it goes in It zigs and zags
1: Yes it is you know As in fine Persona tradition It sets up a lot of rules For how the structure of the game the Dungeons works And then it says You know what fuck it We're going to have a dog Have a Persona in this one Yes exactly Not in Persona 5 No not yeah. But that's Persona 3 did right. it And every Persona game Has their own weird twist Of like fuck it In this one the mascot character Is going to grow a human body Inside of themselves <laughs> <laughs> and Persona 5 has something that's not quite as disturbing as that but is you know if you thought the beginning of Persona 5 was dark the middle of Persona 5 is also very dark
0: very dark so yeah we are going to talk about those third and fourth story arcs of the game and not that I necessarily have any grand revelations about the quality of this game It was great it still is great but this game goes places yeah we're going to talk about that um so spoilers from here on out if you have not played to that point in the game you might want to go back play some more because it's Great and fun, and then you yeah. can come back and listen to this when you're exploring mementos or something because that's probably the only part in this game where you can actually do podcasting. Yeah, that or like I'm like I have a lot of personas to fuse. Let's get let's do this. Yeah, Igor. let's, let's
1: like, yeah, let's like crack your neck, put on yeah. the gloves. Like, let's do this thing. I'm going to go from like 28 percent persona compendium to like 40 percent persona yes. compendium tonight.
0: I just hit 40 com- percent persona yeah. compendium. So yeah, you uh, I definitely this. I don't know if they've changed anything about it, but I feel like I. I'm getting new personas really constantly through fusion. It's really addictive. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I like that part of this game a lot. Yeah, so all right. So much going on in this game at this point. I have eighteen confidants at this point, so I must have almost every social link in the game.
1: Yes, there is Um, only there's obviously the, there's like some party member stuff that happens, but in terms of like the normal people you meet in the yeah. world and those kinds of social links, I think there's only one that has not been introduced yet.
0: So, is there not a sports club or drama club or anything?
1: No, oh, that's no. sad. Yeah, you know, you're you're at Shijing Gakuin, you're not you're you don't join clubs because you are the student who like everyone thinks like murdered someone or something before you came to the school. I don't think they'd be very welcoming to you going to your cl- to going to their club.
0: I, I get it, but I also like. This is not a complaint, but it's an interesting thing to me. Of that, this game has much less of like the weird outsider social links than three or four did. Yeah, where three especially, but four to a certain degree also. You have your party members, but you also just like there's just this kind of sprawl to the game world where you meet all these people out in the world, and they're only maybe they're not related at all to the main story. They're tangentially related or something, and those are really fun to explore. There's not that many of them in Persona Five, and that's okay because I think. The overall focus of the game is so good and it executes so well. But I do miss it once in a while, even though there's there's enough to scratch that itch, like the yeah. politician. Yeah, or Kawakami, or uh, I just started the one with EY, the guy at the gun shop. Yeah. But even then, they're all they're very, very clearly related, and and that's okay. It's just something that's interesting to me to note.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's something that all the Persona games have a different sort of main focus, and it's like Persona Four has this very specific focus on the characters and like that broader world, and like the main plot stuff is not as important. Like the main plot stuff is still good in Persona Four, but it's very focused on you know having stuff of like going out and doing. Like, especially in Persona 4 The Golden Ads, a bunch of these, but like the band going out and doing the band stuff or going on like the school trip and all that, and like has almost no connection whatsoever to what's going on in the main plot. It's just there to sort of spend time with the characters, and it's like a 30 to 40 minute sections of that game periodically where you do that. Persona 3 does not have those, and Persona 5 doesn't have those because I think these games are much more focused, and Persona 5 particularly is very focused on the main plot stuff, and all the social links slash confidants are designed where- around and are contextualized by them helping the main character in some specific way to him being a phantom thief
0: specifically what i would say is persona 5 is about the phantom thieves like it is about the the group the characters but also the general mission and how they affect the world and everything ultimately ties back into that there's really no like dangling threads that are not in some way related to that like the furthest i've probably seen on that ledge is either the politician or the girl who plays Shogi. Yeah. And even there, they give a very specific... And it actually plays very directly into dungeon stuff. That's one of the things to talk about is... Yeah. We didn't get into this much last time. They really did a lot to make all the confidants, all the social links, tie into a bunch of different things you do in the in the game. Mostly in the dungeons, but in other parts too. Like yeah. One of the things I thought was amazing was I, it's the Shogi girl, whatever her name is... Yeah. Uh, uh, Hee yeah. yeah, and you meet her, and the first thing you get from her is that. It's an, what's the ability you get from her? Because it's really uh, you get
1: the ability to swap out uh, party members numbers. in the middle of combat, which is like that changes everything. Yeah, like and now like you realize last time on the podcast I was talking about like oh there's some stuff you get in this game that when you start over a new game and you don't have access to it, you, it seems crazy. That's one of those of like. I started this playthrough Episode 5 And like As soon as I got I guess it's use case the first one You get that you don't have All your party members At the same time And I was finding someone That like I needed A fire spell or something It was like Oh I'll just switch on out It was like Oh my god I don't I can't do that This is fucking crazy And there are a bunch of things That develop Specifically in this Area of the game Where you get all these Other social links That give you little things That were such a fundamental Part about my Like the latter half Of this game And my habits And playing it Of like Stuff like going to Chihaya and she has a lot of abilities that help you get more money or get more social stat boosts and stuff like that. That's where That became a very normal routine for me playing the game. And then when you don't have access to that stuff, it's, it almost hurts because you keep on thinking like, oh, this will be fine. I can, I'll, I'll get my charm leveled up by I'll go talk to Chihaya and pay her some money and then that will help me get my charm up in this, this situation. Oh wait I can't do that I guess I'll do something else today Because this doesn't make as much sense I didn't know that was Chihaya was 4 And now I feel foolish Yeah This game There is I talked about this When I played it Through the first time I think I alluded to This game Is Way more than Persona 3 or 4 It is very complicated To try to maximize Your efficiency In playing the game Because it gives you So many tools There are so many things You can do And so many things That affect your ability To maximize Yours like how you're relating with your social links, how you're increasing your social stats, how you're engaging with the dungeon stuff that like trying to figure out like even when you're just in the middle of it, but especially when you've already played it and know what all that stuff is trying to map out like, okay, wait, no, if I hang out with this person, I'll get this ability, which then will allow me to like increase this stat quicker, which will allow me to hang out with this person, Well, which will then give me this ability to get this stat up quicker so I can hang out with, like if there's like this net of so many different routes you can take. And so many different strategies you can take to try to maximize how you're engaging with that side of the game. It's insane. Okay, I want to talk about this for a minute. Okay. We can go back to some of the things we
0: were talking yeah. about, but I do want to focus on this for a second. Because, you know, I just got through, it's not quite done, but I'm mostly through Summer Break. Yeah. And Summer Break is a fascinating part in Persona 5. Because 3 and 4
1: actually even kind of allied parts of Summer Break in different ways. Yeah, you like know? 3, you basically skip like 2 or 3 weeks of it, right? Because you're like sick.
0: Yeah, there's that, and then in Persona Four, you have to go work at uh, Juness, yeah, and things like that. This game gives you summer break, other than a couple of little things here and there, yeah. and you know it actually even works in this universe where you usually don't have something to do during the day, like a social link, but at night you have a million things to do. But it's it's interesting. So you by once you have summer, and that's also the point where the web of social links is pretty much open to yeah. you, and it's insane. I, I got into this routine where I just like kind of finished playing those three weeks last night. Because I did Futaba's Dungeon like immediately once yeah, I had it. Yeah, I think
1: the game specifically gives you those like first couple of days where there's basically nothing to do during the day. Yeah. Specifically to indicate to you, get this done immediately. Because this whole month, like four straight weeks of the game are just completely open. Which is like the longest stretch of just pure social link time in any of the Persona games. Yeah, it's and it's fascinating to me. But...
0: And I, I, it's, it's. I want to talk about this because it's a really interesting phenomenon with Persona Five, where we've talked with Persona Three and Four about the stress that can come from planning your schedule in these yeah. games, right? But it is on a whole other level with yeah. Persona Five, where I feel like every day in the game, like every time a new day starts and I see the calendar progress, I have to like breathe into a paper bag right. for thirty seconds to like calm down. Of like, it's just a game. Whatever you do, you're gonna have fun with it. You're probably gonna play it again someday. You're, you might fuck up. Oh God, what do I do? Mm -hmm. And it's like, it is so stressful. There are so many things to do. The game does interesting things where it gates a lot of your social links. Like midway or late through you Almost
1: every single social link has a gate through it. Like there are a couple of ones like Yoshida's doesn't progress in a normal way at all. Or like Mishima's doesn't progress in a normal way. But most of the ones that are like your normal social links that like you want to get note points by talking to them and stuff like that to advance them. Almost every single one has at least one social stat gate in the middle of them.
0: Yeah, so you have a social stat gate. They're often pretty robust social stat gates it's like you have to get pretty far with your social yeah. stats and so there's so many and I'll, and Different social links Give you different things Also it's not just Those abilities But some will give you Your charm boosts yeah. And your uh, courage boosts Or whatever Because a lot of them
1: Also give you Like straight up Like three notes in charm Which is like yeah. The most you can gain In any one interaction With something Is by getting three Right And so like Those are like No like if you do this You make significant progress In these stats Every yes. time you, you Interact with this person Yeah so
0: you've got All that big web going on Along with your DVDs And your movies In the theaters And your books And your study spaces And your diner spaces. And like your the jobs. batting
1: cages, and like the spa in your like neighborhood, and like yeah, like you have the beef bowl job, the convenience store job, the flower job. You get the, the you can work at the bar. Yeah, like there's you, that. you get the second movie theater opens up at this point of the game like there are within s- all that you also have mementos and you have your investigations yeah. where over the summer almost
0: everything you get from mishima you have to go investigate so there's another layer you don't just get the name because yeah, that's
1: the only way you can um advance mishima's progress also in his, his- social link is by doing the things he gives you yeah. yeah and you have to investigate some of the social links he gives you by invest, like joining some of the jobs and stuff like that
0: this game is very very busy yeah
1: it is worth asking
0: the question is it okay. too busy I I don't think so. I don't think so either, but I do think it's worth asking.
1: Like, this is also coming from someone who, on their first time playing through the game in a second language, got all the social links and maxed out all my social stats. So, like, I'm not a normal player of this game, so I don't know from that perspective. But for me, especially with this being the third Persona game from this team, slash, like, if you want to count, like, all the spinoffs, like, the fucking fifth or something. Or sixth, if you count, like, there's two for Persona 3. Like that like complicating that side of the game as a veteran player of the Persona franchise I found really fascinating and there's stuff like even I'm playing it through the second time and I know I know because I've already played this game that I am doing better at this point in terms of all that stuff than I was the first time and I managed to finish everything like it was I you know cut it really close but I did manage to finish everything I needed to finish my first time playing through the game and even knowing that I'm still stressed out and I'm still reloading saves to be like no, I'm not going to just settle for getting two proficiency points at the batting cage. Fuck that! I'm going to do something else. I'm going to like, I'm going to like go talk to Chiya, or I'm going to go do something else and get three points or something. Like, I want to maximize this as much as possible, and actually doing that is difficult. And like, there's no perfect way to do it. No. In a way that like when I played Persona Four the Golden, that side of the game felt like, oh, this is easy. Like, this is just like I partially because I played Persona Four once all the way through, but also because all the things they added onto Persona Four the Golden. Like it gave you so much more stuff To be able to sort of maximize that side of it Without giving you that much more stuff to do on the other side Because they only add two social links One of which is a very abnormal social link That's like I like maximize that game Without even really needing to think about it much Like again this is my second time playing through my, I don't think I went Through a stretch of Like three or four days Over the summer Without me like Reloading a save To like the previous day To be like You know what No actually I'm going To do this instead Because this will be easier I had not
0: been doing it A lot until summer And then it was yeah. like I was pretty constantly Like uh, It wasn't even that I made mistakes It was like I was Trying things out Like what will I get From this Yeah, but... I'm making a save And I'm going to Try something And
1: know? I feel like The game kind of invites you to do that because saving is saving and loading your game is so much more accessible in this one then persona 3 and persona 4 you had specific save points you had to go through in persona 5 you can save wherever you want and like very quickly load up your old save and it takes like it loads up in like half a second you know yeah there's something about the speed and efficiency at which you can do that that it kind of feels and like having the skip feature and all that stuff there it feels like the game is kind of inviting you to be like you know what Because it's kind of in that thing of it's always telling you to take your time in a way that when you are at this point in the game, you're like, fuck you, game. I can't take my time because you're only giving me so much time. And so you're like, I have to reload that save because I know, oh, wait, no, okay. If I accept, like, that phone call from Yusuke, then I'll get some extra social link points with him that will make it so that then this next day I'll be able to actually up my social link with him instead of just having to, like... Bank points with him because he's not ready to
0: advance. It's weird because I got all of your friend's social links either maxed or to the point where they were, I'm like gated before any of that. So none of that really even has played into my summer. And I still, it's crazy. Like, there's just a a tiny, tiny sliver. No I I think you're absolutely right and that's still only half the answer to me because I think you're right on the mechanical side that that amount of busyness is it's very challenging it's also incredibly rewarding. Yeah. Even when you feel like you've kind of made a mistake or you're like not sure if you did the right thing there's something so rewarding about the effort you put into it. Yeah. And like what you get out of it and like whenever you like finish a segment of the day and you feel like I made good use of that time. Even if in the back of your mind you're like, oh, probably a way to make better use of it, but who knows, you know, yeah. right? And and that all is very rewarding. But I think that's only half the answer, because to me this also ties into, uh, thematically, that I've seen the, the criticism around the internet a little bit, that people love the style of this game and recognize that the, stylists, the the overall stylization of it is really impressive, but I've seen some people criticize that they think it's like maybe too much, that it gets distracting visually. Huh. and. I don't think that. I think it's a, another question worth asking because this game ha, is very visually busy, also, and sure. it is something worth noticing. But to me, it's all of a piece because yeah. when I first started seeing that, my first reaction when, like, over the first couple hours of Persona Five, wasn't that it was necessarily too busy visually, but that, oh boy, I don't know what's going on quite yet. That you had, it takes a while to kind of settle in and figure out all the different moving pieces of the UI and just yeah. the overall stylization. But once I read, like, I remember when this clicked for me was early in the game when you first have to go to school and it makes you follow the fucking train line yes. there. yeah. Which I actually think the game maybe should have made you do a couple more times
1: just because it's such an interesting thematic thing. I like to do it every now and then just yeah. for fun. I like to just, like right. go like, walk somewhere the hard way instead of just fast traveling. Exactly. It's really interesting.
0: But, like, I got lost a couple of times doing that. It's kind of hard to figure out where you're going and I realized that's the point yeah that's the point this game is about living in Tokyo it's about this busy crazy cacophonous life and I think the visualization of this game is expressionistic it is taking what is going on in the characters heads and exploding it onto the screen and that is a thematic point if you feel like it's busy and sometimes hard to get your head around what's going on that is that the developers would say yes yeah. That is what we were going for because there is this explosive quality to the visuals that are kind of intentionally, This they are this coordinated mess. Yeah. You know, they are this coordinated mess of, of, of an exploded psyche on the screen. And I think that also goes hand in hand with just how busy the game is on that social link and just general time management level is that this isn't Inaba, this yeah. isn't... Um, you know, Gekko High and uh, Inaba... What's his name? Uh, Tatsumiport Totsum- Island. Port Island, where life is a little slower and easier to manage. Yeah. This is fucking Tokyo. You are one kid in a sea of millions, and you are trying to do your best. And I think the game is almost built in such a way where there, you're never probably going to maximize your time perfectly. Yeah. You know? You could still max... Like, I, I still think I probably have a good shot at finishing every social link by the end of the game. I'm not sure when it exactly ends, but I yeah. feel like I've made enough progress... But you're supposed to be on edge, you know. You're supposed to be on your toes because that's what this setting is about, and the setting is not window dressing in this game. It is tied into everything this game is attempting. Yeah, and
1: like, and I think you especially feel that really strong in the summer break section because, like, I feel like, and it's sort of it's fortuitous because also, like, you know, we're in Colorado, it's April, like it is starting to get hot, and you know, when I first played this game It was in October when it was cold. But I remember even then, and especially now. The summer in this game just feels, like, overwhelmingly hot to me. And there's, like, there's a lot of reasons for that. Like, one is, you know, there's a, like, oftentimes it'll tell you, like, the weather. And it's, like, either, like, torrential rain or it's, like, this, like, burning hot night or whatever they, they translate it as. It's, like... Heat wave. Yeah, heat wave. Like, it's, like, you're always aware of, like, it is very hot. If you go into Mementos, like, the heat weather has specific effects and stuff like that. Every time you go... Like, you're obviously you're wearing your, like, uh, summer clothes... And then every time he like turns to night, you know, Morgana like half the time is complaining about like, Oh man, it's gonna be a it's going to be a hot one tonight too, huh? And, like, the window is open and, like, the, just the, the room looks different. And there's just this sense of heat. Like, you know, all of your friends are constantly coming over to your cafe and want to hang out in your room and, like, just, like, rest in the air conditioning and play video games or, like, watch a DVD or something because it's so fucking hot outside. And when you go outside, you have, like, the cicadas are crying. And so you have, like, the shin like, on the sound effect on the screen all the time at the edges. It's, like, it really does like it puts the pressure on you in a lot of ways just with like those subtle effects of like it just be like it's hot it's summer and i have so much stuff i need to do i need to hang out with all these people i need to go into mementos like i i need to like you know finish up the fataba palace or whatever like i want to go fuse these personas and like i need to go work at my job i need to, like there's all this pressure like pushing down on you and it like you said it is very much a part of like what this game is trying to convey About living in the city... And about living this busy busy life... And also like... Not just living like... The busy life of the city... But on top of that... Living the life of like... You know... Trying to live the good... Like a good life... Trying to live a life of like... I'm going to do right by people... I'm going to like... I have this mission... I'm going to like... Work towards... Succeeding at this mission... Because every time... You upload Social Link... Not only do you get like extra persona bowers, but like also maybe you get like the ability to swap people in and out of combat. Or like Kifumi has a whole set of abilities that she gets that you get from her later on that add like a bunch of little tiny things that are incredibly useful in combat. And so like constantly you know, you're getting all this feedback about I am doing better at, as a phantom thief by doing what I'm doing right now. I'm not just living my life in Inaba or like in, in Tosmi Port Island, which in Persona 4 and Persona 3, there's an aspect of that daily life stuff that feels way more relaxing because it's like oh like I just get to hang out in this nice quiet town and here it's like no everything I'm doing is like to the cause because I'm always getting these text messages from my friends and they're all stressed out about what megieto is doing or whatever like it's a constant thing and and it's one of the things I really love about this game is how it is able to really sort of like capture that essence of like living in this really this really busy city life. It's so great, and when you pull some of these strings together and pull it off, it is so wildly
0: satisfying. Yeah, like I had over uh, the summer break, you basically you can rack up four mementos targets. Before, um, the like, the timer runs out on those 21 days. Yeah. And so I, I had these four, three of them you have to investigate. And yeah. I'm like, well, I'm not going into Mementos until I know these fucking names. Yeah. And I probably had the time to do it if I wanted to because the summer is also, as busy as it feels, it's also fairly relaxed in a lot I of mean, places. I mean,
1: they give you a huge amount of time. Like yeah.
0: It's, it is straight up four weeks at the end. Right. Um, so you have a lot of to, to do with, but I was like, I, I want to figure this out. So, you know, I did the investigations, which required me to do more with my jobs, made me really feel like a phantom thief it's something i love about mementos is that that really makes you feel like you're playing this role more than if it was just the palaces yeah and you'd save three people you know yeah because
1: you're you're doing these investigations you're finding out your names you're finding out what these people did and then you're going after them and they're like they're not these bigger than life like larger than life targets it's like oh it's like this one dude who beat his girlfriend and it's like you know, his, it's not as crazy as, like, what... You know, like, the extortion ring that Connoisseur was running. But it's like, this dude's still a fucking piece of shit. And right. we need to fix this.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, I got all of them together. Got all my ducks in a row. Got the team together at, at uh, LeBlanc and morgana gets on the table and starts talking about yeah. the targets and he has four to go through so it's like five minutes of text to scroll scroll through of all these targets we get to mementos i take them all the fuck out and i get back out and it's just like there's something so satisfying especially when you know the the protagonist breaks through the red window and like you have the music yeah. and it's showing all the things you
1: accomplished yeah it's just like pho-ching of like yeah. all the like you beat all these bosses and lighten yep. up all these floors and stuff
0: yeah and i've got i had two hundred thousand yen on me and all this and it's just like yep the, the job well done for yeah. the
1: phantom thieves i love how much money and experience you get for doing those side requests because it's yes. like it really it's something where you want to do them anyways because it's a fun thing to do and it feels like appropriate for the game but i also like you it's really like worth it from a gameplay perspective as well you are very much rewarded for going out of your way to doing those because it's like it's a hefty chunk of experience and money that's a really important point to make, I yeah. think, is that pretty much everything
0: in the game gives you a real tangible mechanic award. Yeah. And that's important because you don't quite notice it in Persona 3 and 4 because all of it is, so, is executed at such a high level. But, you know, you could ignore a lot of the social links and it would not hurt your core progress, progress yeah. through the game. It would hurt your heart because you would be inhuman if you didn't go visit the sickly dying boy in the park or yeah. something. But you don't need to go visit the sickly dying boy in the park to, for instance, swap out teammates in a battle. Here, like, what would be a very missable social link, and technically still is here, is absolutely crucial. And doing as much as you can of everything, it's not just that you want to see the social links because they're great pieces of writing. And you want to see them for the story value. All of that is still there and has not been diluted, I don't think. But there's also just these much more tangible rewards that makes everything feel so worth your time. And also in in, in tandem raises the stress level of the game. Yeah. Very, very high.
1: Because it's also one of the things in the game that is like that. That I just never do because I'm so... Just I need to get all the social links and all that stuff. But they have that mechanic where you can work out in your room or eventually you can go to the gym... Too, and that increases your maximum HP and your maximum SP And like SP is such a valuable resource in this game And it's like I always have been like Oh my god like the new game plus of this game has got to be insane Because you have to You pr- must spend so much of your time Just fucking doing pull-ups in your goddamn room Getting ripped Like getting this really massive SP bar That like you know I've Since I've played the game already I There are a lot of strategies you can use Like making uh, coffee at the blonde and stuff like that to give you sp items and there's a lot of stuff or like fusing personas in specific ways that like is a lot harder to maximize that stuff and like persona for the golden i didn't even intend to end up making personas that made the completely trivialized the sp management in the game and but you can just make one so early in that where it's like you have to be about at this point in the game before you can make your first persona that has invigorate that regenerates sp at the beginning of each battle so it's like there's stuff you can do to really minimize the sp pressure in dungeons but like that's only, like, for me, who's played a bunch of these games and has played this one twice, am I not feeling that pressure that much? Like, the first time through the game, there are, like... Especially the top of Palace, like, there are areas where, like, fuck, like, I'm, like... Yeah, I, I really need Yuji to have more SP, or I really need, like, I wish I had more SP. and And that just hanging there like you could get more sp if you just worked out once in a while you fat ass like what get off your ass do some fucking pull-ups and maybe you can cast that extra zeal i don't know it's like you don't understand i have to hang out with my hot doctor friend she's a hot doctor and she's my friend and she needs me i can't do the pull-ups right now but it's always but you always
0: know you can do it Yep. man takemi I got her right to the line of where I need, like, level 4 charm yeah. months ago in this game. I yeah. love that social link, and I was doing it so fast. And then I hit that brick wall, and I haven't seen her in months.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I I just finished her social link again okay. a little while ago. Yeah. And yeah, it's her social link's great. And, and there's something I like about... Like, it, it can be a little bit frustrating hitting those social link walls, especially when they're that late, or the social stat walls that late in some of the social links. But it also, there's something I like about you... Like specifically with that one I remember the first time I played through the game I was like alright I'm going to get my charm up now And like yep, there's something no, there that's very motivating about like Because th- since there are so many different social links That are gated at different places By like all those different social stats Like there again there's no one way to be like I'm going to focus on knowledge here And then guts And then charm And then knowledge Like there's no one of those That like like is the perfect way to make your way through the game It's just like which one do I want to focus on do I want to get EY as early as possible well then like work on your guts like really early on like do you want to do do you want to hang out with me? do charm and like even like past this point is where that actually even gets like more specific where that happens with more different social links that's like all the different ones because yeah. obviously eventually you need to have all of them up to five if you want to get all the social links in the right. game. And I'm at
0: four with guts and knowledge and three with everything else. But I have to be right yeah. on that line with
1: charm because yeah. I've poured so many points into it. Yeah, I'm at four with everything right now. Because okay. i played the game once and so I know all the good strats and it yeah. feels really good. But again, I'm st- because I think I was about where you are the first time I played through the game. And like I know I'm doing way better. I'm way more efficient. And I'm still so stressed out playing the game. It's, it's really... It almost feels unhealthy at points in terms of like how, oh, I, yeah. like, like, like you said, you advanced that day, and it's just, I'm filled with so much self doubt about, like, you know, I really, I know I probably could have gotten, like, because if I had gotten the, the bonus from Chihaya and then went to go study at the cafe, like, I could have technically gotten a total of four points to social stats. It would just have been split across two, and that is more, but it's not as many in one specific area. Like, which one is fucked? Like, what it's got? Because again, there's no right answer in that. Like, it's, it's it's hard.
0: No, and I think I've gotten good at it. Like, you know, one of the things I did over the summer, because I realized there were a lot of areas where, partially because a lot of my, you know, social links are gated, I have a lot of times, either evening or more often day, where I I cannot do any social links. So I have to do something else. And it's like, this is actually a great time to go rent a DVD and watch it morning and night and just do that and then return it to the next day. And so I've gotten the the next four DVDs unlocked. I've watched all of them. I did them all over summer break. And those, for each sitting, give you three points. So it's like... I don't necessarily need kindness right now, but I'm going to and I should just get those points in while I have it. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of stuff you think about like that that like I've also got the video game console now. Yeah. That thing's awesome. Yeah, the fake famicom is really good. Fake Famicom, the music. Love love fake Famicom music. Yeah. Those are great, Star Fornius. Yes,
1: and you get to get even more fake Famicom carts later in the game. If Where are those good. sold? Um, you haven't unlocked it yet, okay, so it's, okay. yeah, it's it's something like you're about to get in the next. Okay, season. I didn't know if it was at that like recycle place. No, but... there's I think maybe another one ended up getting sold there, but there's another store that you okay, get access to cool. later.
0: Yeah, because uh, I also like I'm pretty sure I've acquired every book in the game. I don't know how the fuck I would read all of them. I'm pretty yeah. sure I'll be able to Like see all the DVDs And movies and games And stuff
1: Yeah no The book stuff definitely feels like That is like On your new game plus That's a big yeah. thing To try to get the Read every book trophy Cause Like Like You've like there are a lot of books in the game because no, you don't have every book in the game because like the game's not done yet. There's no, no, I available. mean I have them up to now. Until like yeah, yeah, no, but there yeah. are, yeah,
0: there are a lot of books in the game. Yeah, no, but I feel like I've been pretty diligent just catching them as they come along. Have
1: you gotten to the store? Because like, there's so many different ways you can end up here, but you eventually unlock a store that has more books that like you have to. It has books that are three. You have to read them for three sessions to finish them, but they give you more stuff, and then you have like they unlock more books progressively. Is that the used bookstore? Because, well, it's like Bookland or something. I don't know how they translated it, but... It's, is, is that the one... It's, it's like a whole other section of the map you have to travel to. Like you, like, unlock it, like, the places that you, like, go out on dates with people. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think
0: I've... I haven't gone there on my own okay. yet. As I think I just got it through the Shogi Girls Yeah, yeah. That's one okay. way you can get to there. Yeah, yeah that's... Yeah, so you I, can select there on the okay. map and go there and buy yeah. books from there. Awesome. you have to okay. specifically pick it. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, because there's the bookstore... In Shibuya, yeah. and there's the bookstore in um, the red light district, wherever that uh, is. Oh yeah, Shinjuku. Shinjuku, uh, and then yeah, so there's this one. So I have three bookstores now.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah there are a lot of books in the game. <laughs> a lot of books
0: in the game. Like they, they took, they said, said saw that in Persona Four, and were like, we want to do more of that. Yeah. And have DVDs, and have games, and have movies, and oh my god, yeah, it's so great. But my god, those DVDs are so good. The second round was not quite as funny as the first. Yeah. I did particularly though because I am a fan of the show it is based on I liked ICU <laughs> Okay and, yeah and yeah. and just like the specific lines they have the doctors on that show saying are so funny and and of course Morgana's reactions are always great when he yeah. just like slumps in his chair or i love when like you're at the movie theater watching a movie and Morgana is just in his in the bag yeah. and looking up at the movie and he's just enjoying himself so much and i just love the image of you've snuck this cat into the theater only paid for one ticket yeah. and uh, Morgana's just sitting in
1: a, sitting in his bag Morgana must like... The, he must have like a cushion in there or something. Yeah. I mean, it is an interesting point. that Like, Morgana is getting very cultured over the course of this game. Yes. M- Morgana is there every time you're reading a book. Morgana is every, there every time you're watching a TV show. Every time you play a video game. And every time you go see a movie. Like, Morgana is consuming all of this pop culture at the same rate you are.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's It's crazy. So, yeah. I have finished Two Social Links. Okay.
1: Uh, I have finished... Cause what, which ones have you finished? Um, Ryuji and Aan. Okay, yeah, because yeah, Ryuji and Aan are, are the first two I finished. Because I think that's, that feels like those are the first two you're supposed to finish because they're not really gated in any way. So I finished them, I finished Takemi, I finished Kawakami, and I feel like I finished another one like just like today or like just like like right before you came over. Yeah, I got to be what the fifth one was.
0: I'm very close on Kawakami but there's something I have to
1: do and I won't be able to do until school starts. Yeah. And then um, Oh yeah, I didn't even think about that that if your school isn't going on I guess you can't trigger that part of the event. Yeah. It's I mean it's fine. Yeah, I can do yeah. other things at the same time. Yeah, no. I'm not losing time, but Well, have, you don't you don't yeah. know what you get for getting bubble ten with Kawakami. Yeah, you get a couple of things. Anyway, but yeah, well, you get a lot with Kawakami. Too. Yeah, you do um,
0: yeah um but let's see i mean takemi that'll be ready to roll as soon as i got my charm up yeah i'm gonna hang because i love the yeah takemi you get a lot for movie.
1: completing that social link too
0: yeah there's this it's
1: the social links are great yoshida that's the other one i finished is that the politician yeah yeah, that's okay. the politician dude.
0: yeah i'm not done with him but he he seems to advance really rapidly
1: well he, yeah because actually like you he just advances every single time you meet oh, him like yeah, you don't like how you respond to him doesn't even matter which okay it's something i wish i had known for most of my first time playing through the game because i was like Oh I like, because I like you know. It's how I play these games a lot of times. Is I would reload a save and like go through a social link thing again if I felt like guys like missed some big answers to questions that like made it that like would get me a bunch of points. And then, like, with him, I realized, like, halfway through, wait, he ne- I never have to go meet him, and it doesn't advance. And I looked it up, and it's like, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> like, it just goes every single time.
0: Yeah, that's what I thought. So I'm kind of... I'm, but because of that, I'm also taking him a little more leisurely yeah. sometimes. Yeah, but... you can
1: yeah, tackle him whenever. Yeah, so... his, Because his abilities are nice, because they make um, persuading demons in the demon negotiations and stuff a little bit easier, but it's not, like, essential.
0: Not essential, although the show-me-the-money thing you get... When I'm in Mementos, because in Mementos you're never going to get like enough experience for it to matter really on normal enemies. But you can get money and you're so short on cash a lot of the time in this game. That's actually been really useful because the Mementos run I just did, I was regularly getting like 3,000 yen out of these
1: dudes. And I was like, I can get a lot with 3,000 yen. Yeah, I do really love like you just like pushing it every single time and they're like... Okay yeah fine I'll give you more money It's like Okay yeah I guess I'll give you more money Until you push them To the absolute edge They're like No fuck you Like I gave you like 20,000 yen you monster Like yeah no It's It's fantastic I mean I think we're
0: gonna have To have a specific topic at some point in the future talking about social links and our
1: favorite ones yeah because it's hard to talk about right now because like obviously we're in different spots and stuff it's hard to talk about the social link when you're in the middle of it because you don't know the full perspective i don't want to spoil them for you
0: may i highlight one just Just because it comes
1: up in the natural progression and i wanted to talk about it last week but it's really
0: during the third story arc okay yeah during the third story arc ryuji comes up to you and he has found an ad in his mailbox for a maid service yes and a maid wink service. service and he's very knowledgeable of the or he knows the wink he that's what he wants right the yes wink. that is very and, much what he wants and he wants you to hang out with him and do the maid thing because he has like an apartment across the hall he can use and then mishima gets in on it and so these three dudes are gonna go and they know it's not really a good idea but they're going and it's maybe probably illegal yeah and they're gonna call the maid over and they don't really know what the maid does but they have ideas but they have no plan if like, it's it's a typical teenage... It's, it's actually a pretty familiar scenario for Persona. Yeah. But then it goes in a very different direction. Because the maid so, yeah. comes over and you're like... Hey, that's Yukari's voice.
1: That means it's Miss Kawakami. And yeah. Or, and then, like, you see her character portrait and you're like... I would recognize that chin line anywhere. Because it's yes. like her character... Her face has a very distinctive yes. shape to it. Because it's, like, not quite, like, the normal, like, Japanese, like, anime female face. She's right. She's got, like, this very distinctive chin.
0: Yes. And so Miss Kawakami is the, is the maid. And at this point, Ryuji and Mishima have chickened out. And yeah, are in they're, the closet they're hiding out in, like, the balcony. Right. And so you are talking to her. And, you know, at first it's really awkward. But then, like, she kind of decides to trust you and gives her... Because she seems really desperate for cash, gives you her number. And yeah. you decide, oh, that's what the yellow phone in LeBlanc is for. Is we're going to use that yeah. to call Miss Kawakami. And this whole time I'm thinking... Please let this be a social link. Please let this... Is if they are actually going there, that will be amazing. And so yeah. I, I realize I have to get my guts up to call her. So I work furiously to get my guts up. Yeah. Get my guts up. Gotta eat that oh, Big Bang Burger. That's, I think, how I did it. And then I, I call her on the yellow phone. And lo and behold, she comes over as a nurse, cleaning your room, calling you master. And it initiates the temperance social link. Yep. And that is... One of the most amazing like, build ups to a social link in the Persona series.
1: Yeah, it, it really feels like they looked at the best uh, social link for Persona 3, the MMORPG one, yeah. where slight spoiler for Persona 3 that social link ultimately culminates in you finding out this character you're hanging out with in this MMO is your homeroom teacher at school, which is such an amazing payoff when you yes. get to the end of the game and you've completed that social link and you expose this, reveal this information to her that you've discovered a while ago but she doesn't know about. And so, but they looked at that and like, how do we incorporate a teacher into the social links and have it be even more insane? Oh, let's like have her work for some sort of like dubious service for like extra money on the side because of all this tragic backstory things that she has, and then have you hire her as a maid and also make it straight up like. In my opinion, the most valuable social link in terms of the abilities it gives you are so huge. huge. Like, she can do the laundry for you. So Because like, like, every single ability she has makes it so that little tiny mundane tasks that normally you would have to spend a little bit amount of your day on to accomplish that you don't want to do because you want to do something bigger. You no longer have to spend time doing that because she does it for you. How do you activate that? Um, there's a laundromat. Uh, in the neighborhood that like where leban is i 've been there, yeah, yeah, if you go up to the laundromat and you you activate it, you get the option to call Kawakami and pay five thousand yen to oh, have her okay. wash all your clothes for you and, but she can do other things right she can do other things, so she can wash the laundry for you, she can also and this is like as you progress through the game, you unlock these other abilities so she can wash the laundry for you, and so that 's basically. Persona 5's weird way Of doing like Item identification In like a Diablo game Or something Is you right. get clothes That are dirty And then you have to wash and them And see
0: I've just been Getting rid of them Because I didn't want To take the
1: time I didn't realize Okay yeah, yeah I no. knew she could do this I just couldn't figure out How to activate it Yeah, okay. so, yeah just go to the laundromat And, and Morgana will guide you from, okay. from there Don't worry And so she can do that But she can also make Coffee and curry When you unlock the ability To get curry as well Which are items That generate SP In dungeons So that's really useful If you have some extra cash On hand To have her make some of those Before you go into the dungeon And she can make infiltration tools like lockpicks for you so you don't have to spend money making or spend time making those if you don't want to. But you won't know like, oh, there's going to be like three or four lock checks in the next dungeon. I don't have any lockpicks. Hey, I'll call call up Sensei. Have her make them for me. Then I'm not going to tell you what it is, but the level 10 one is such a fucking game changer. You're going to hate yourself when you get it because you're going to realize, oh my god, if I had gotten this earlier... My life would have been dead. well. I know what my priority is now, yeah, Sean. No, it's it's like when I first because for me there was a whole other level to it the first time I was playing the game. It was the combination of like oh getting this really awesome ability and also having to like sit there and be like what does that say? Because it's like you know it's all just like text in Japanese It's, like tends to be fairly technical text with a lot of kanji. I'm like,
2: oh
1: holy shit she can like is you know I, I wasted like a day last week making shit at the laundromat oh my god she can do this and like deciphering what it is it's it's a whole extra level to the surprise and like joy of finding out holy shit i had no idea that you could do that in this game
0: i really do i, I actually i never want to play this game with new game plus because i think it would actually spoil a lot of the game but i cannot wait to play the game again once i know what's what yeah and like really try to
1: maximize it you know yeah there's there's a lot of stuff yeah uh, yeah, so yeah, Kalakami's social link is really, really good.
0: It's good, and I won't go into any other story things with it, because yeah. I want to wait until we do an actual, like, spoiler link, or social link spoiler cast. Yeah. Uh, what would we call it spoiler link, I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, like, I want to talk about this. But it is just such an amazing build-up. And then the social link itself, it's not just useful, it's a great story, great yeah. writing. And it's
1: one of the other, like, I think it's a really key social link in terms of the overall... Like structure of the game's story and yes. how it shifts in tone because it's like and it's something that Sojuto's arc when we talk about like the stuff that's in like the fourth dungeon jesus yeah. like it is that sort of echo of you start this game off with like all these adults being total assholes and being incredibly cold to you and you assuming that like they're like that because they're just assholes and then slowly you learn about them and realize oh no they've been dicked over as much if not more than i have but like they in some ways don't have as much of a they don't have, like, another out in society because they're adults and I'm a kid and I still have, like, a future that I can work towards and a chance, and it's, like, it's much harder for where they are. And that's, like... so yeah, of... I mean, you're learning how to make the future better is not to fall into that scenario, yeah, you know? Yeah, So it's, like, Kawakami's social link definitely is, like, a big one of those stories in this game. It's it's great, and, you know, the
0: Maya social link in Persona 3, the online game one, is just, like, innocent flirtation, yeah. you know? In this game, it's... It's innocent flirtation, but done in a
1: non-innocent way, and it's very... Yeah, no, like, there's a, we will have a long conversation about, like, this game is over, uh, the number of romantic interests you have in this game, and the relative age of those romantic interests compared to the relative age of your main character. Which is something I hinted at the first time I played through the game, but I'm really excited to talk about it, because it's a weird, really interesting thing this game does, I think.
0: Yeah, I am interested to see more of this. Because actually, that's one thing to note, is I finished the on-social link. Yeah. And, you know, romanced her because you got to. on. Yeah. I mean, she's the lover
1: uh, or con. Like, you, you have to.
0: Yeah. And the game is more overtly sexual um, with yeah, its romances absolutely. than yeah. the others. Because the others, like, you can kind of read into it what you want, but they do mostly seem like kind of innocent high school romances. This is, like you and on do it you know, yeah, at, at level which 10. like I
1: think specifically for the on social link feels like it's actually like how that story is supposed to culminate in a lot of ways because so much of that story is about her like sort of like kind of accepting and growing into that side of who she is, like like alongside her modeling career, yeah,
0: yeah, it's interesting, so we'll have a lot
1: to break down there. Let's talk about some story
0: stuff, okay, and the two palaces and keep this relatively focused so we can end soonish, um but okay, so the third story arc. Is yeah. mostly Makoto's story, Yeah, but this is also the, the, the mark here is Kaneshiro, yes. who is the Yakuza of
1: the game. Yes, he's, he's the mafia boss. Tec- yes. Technically, I don't think he's technically Yakuza. He's, he's not? He's, okay. No, because they never use the word Yakuza to describe okay. him in the Japanese version.
0: Yeah, I was curious, when they said mafia in this, I'm like, is that a translation choice? Is that- No, that's okay. Mafia yeah. Busu, is just how, how oh, okay. it's called. Then that's actually a question I have about Kanashiro: yeah. is what's his voice like in Japanese?
1: Um it's very sort of snively it's it's and and I don't know what they do when he transforms into the fly thing at the end of the dungeon but in uh Japanese he raps so I don't know it's like they did not do that yeah like because you like they looked like from the English text they kind of did a little bit of that but they didn't go the full the full nine yards they did in the Japanese version
0: yeah no I was kind of surprised just how snively he is in English too that's a very like He's a little bitch, you know. Sure, he's an yeah. asshole. Yeah,
1: yeah. He, he, although he does it in Japanese because he he talks in a very like thuggish, like yakuza kind of way. Like he has a snively quality to his voice, but like how he talks is very tough guy. Yeah,
0: and they yeah. don't really replicate that in English yeah. as much. Um, I was a little like I thought that voice in English could have been more forceful, but whatever. It's it's fine. I mean, he's he's kind of the least interesting, I think, of the marks so far. But yeah. by intention, yeah,
1: and, like it's very much he like is in the background so they can focus more on Makoto because. He and Makoto don't really have much of a relationship together, but they have been building up Makoto before this point in the way they did not with Anon and Yusuke. Exactly, and I, lo- I love the third story arc because I think Makoto,
0: other than Morgana, to me so far is the best character in this game, yeah. hands down. And well, maybe, you've only bet-
1: met Futaba, so yeah, there's, no, a Fu- lot, there's a lot of room to grow Futaba's here. Futaba's
0: fantastic, but Makoto is just one of those fucking standout characters. Yeah, she's really good. She's fantastic, and her story is so interesting because... We talked about this a little bit last week, but they seed her throughout the first two arcs of the game and really heavily near the end of the second one where she's, if you look around, she's constantly following you. She's being harassed by the principal. That's actually an interesting thing about this game is that Persona 4 pretty much never broke POV for the main character. Persona 3 does it very occasionally late in the game.
1: Persona 5 constantly breaks POV. Yeah. Yeah, like it will cut to Makoto and Sai in particular a lot. Yeah. Yeah, her older sister Sai.
0: Yeah, and once you
1: see the connections, it
0: doesn't feel as jarring. But early on, you're like, oh, they don't usually do this. Or
1: you also have the one director dude that like every once in a while you cut to in his like Skyrise office. And he says like... Slowly more and more menacing things Until you realize Okay yeah no this dude's definitely evil Like he's definitely up to something bad at this point
0: Exactly But anyway so you have these scenes You know the kind of pressure Makoto is under I know it's Makoto They keep saying Makoto what did you do Dub team You're so good at this And you dropped the from ball what, on uh, like, cause
1: I've actually been Looking around a little bit At like some of the Criticisms and stuff And from what I understand I haven't been able To directly verify this But a lot of people Are talking online Like the like Atlas Japan Actually like Specifically requested In the, in the dubbing process That is how those names Are supposed to be pronounced Which I have no idea why It makes absolutely no sense Why that would be the case I, And again I don't know 100% for the, If that is true But that is what people Are saying
0: honestly that would make i mean it doesn't make sense but it makes sense because japanese companies do weird things and you can tell the actors are straining on it it does
1: not sound natural and these are professionals they know how to say the names yeah because like a lot of the the, like like basically all the voice actors in english have worked in anime and stuff like that before so are familiar with having to read japanese names and the weirdest thing is the names that aren't mispronounced you know and like some
0: of them are fine like Futaba I think they out the A A little too much But that's a really Tough name to say Sure yeah Because like, you, you would Really say like Futaba But that's like Futaba it's, it's weird you know Like you can't Really say that in English the same yeah. way So that's fine But yeah Makoto It's like No it's not the name That's not yeah. the name Or like sometimes There will be An elongated vowel Like in Nishima And yeah. they won't do it They'll say Nishima It's like no
1: It's Nishima Yeah you like could've... You, you... Even went to the trouble in the like text of the game to put both of the eyes there yeah. where usually that wouldn't happen and yet they, I guess they don't pronounce it.
0: Yeah, it's bizarre. But anyway, Makoto, you know, she's under all this pressure and, she, and this also comes at a turning point where the phantom thieves are trying to figure out well, what do we do next? You know, yeah. they're very lost and she decides I'm going to kill three or four birds with one stone and you guys have to prove you are just to me by taking down like the biggest criminal in town. Yeah. You know, and this also helps Makoto because... She's the student council president, and Kanashiro is preying on all these kids uh, financially, maybe sexually, we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and anyway, so there's that. I would not be surprised with this, this game.
1: They right. did not directly imply it, but
0: sure yeah. uh, And then this is also the part where we meet Akechi, a character from Death Note. <laughs> not literally, <laughs> but pretty much a character from Death Note, yeah. who is a boy detective. Not a boy detective in the way Naoto was a boy detective, in that he is actually a boy. Yeah. But um, he is a. And also, doesn't seem to be that as good a a detective as Naoto Shiragane. But we've only
1: just been introduced to Akechi, so there's more for him to. There's room for him to grow. Sure. I mean,
0: he's been around in the game for a while. He hasn't been that big a character yet. Yeah, yeah. They
1: definitely, like, sort of seed him on early and, like, sort of pick him up here and there. Because you get that that justice social link with him that advances. It's like. It's the most erratic social link you could possibly find in one of these games.
0: Nice. So, anyway, Akechi is kind of. Harassing the phantom thieves On this this show and stuff And so Makoto You can tell she's having This crisis of faith She chooses to resolve it In this way You decide to invade Kanashiro's palace Turns out to be a bank In the sky That's pretty cool And then uh, Makoto Becomes part of the team And has a bitchin' fucking motorcycle
1: persona maybe the best persona this franchise has ever had like that yeah that moment when she like even though you've like if you've seen like i think it was like the second trailer where you see her for the first time you see that scene in that trailer and even like knowing that that's what her persona was going to be when you get there in the game and you see that scene it's so fucking cool such a great scene and i
0: think i think makoto is maybe the best extended character introduction in any persona game of a character outside of, like, the core team. Right. You know? Because, like... And there's a lot of good ones, you know, in, in Persona 3 you've got Igus, and in Persona 4 you have all the other people like Kanji yeah. and Rise and all that. And like Naoto has a pretty good one, because Naoto's seated on kind of early. Yes, and, and Naoto I think would be like a runner-up for me, but Makoto's story arc of how long it takes to develop, the way they tie it into where the Phantom Thieves are and what they need to do, and with Kanashiro, and that she just gets to this point, and it, it is, you know, visualized in that scene where she gets her motorcycle persona, where she just can't take this fucking shit anymore. Yeah. That's where she is. And like she is... Starting out you wouldn't think that she is like maybe the most emblematic of the themes of this game. But by the time you get there she is one of the most emblematic of these characters. Of yeah. that, She has been put upon in in... Totally invisible ways You know She is not a, a punk Like Ryuji And she is not You know Kind of a, a Outcast model Like On, Or she is not Someone with a Criminal record Like the protagonist She is like The best student In the school Yeah And she needs To fuck shit up Because it's ruined Her
1: life Yeah because like And it's something That obviously you have like equivalence, equivalence in almost any society of like the honor student right. like teacher's pet that kind of thing but specifically in Japan like they, they use the word yutose to refer to her which is like exceptional excellent student like this top student in the class she's the student council president like and she like does what like you know Kobayakawa the principal calls her into his office all the time to give her commands and all this stuff and this very much feels like this direct sort of indictment of the attitude of the education system in Japan that it's so intense That puts so much Pressure on students To like work To like like Study incredibly hard At school To like go to Cram school Like during the evening So it's like a Like, like you know Makoto almost certainly Would be attending Two schools basically At the same time To like prepare her Because she's also A senior at high school like she's about to graduate so She's preparing for entrance exams next Year like which are in Japan Incredibly intense and like if you Fuck up and like don't get into the school you Want to get into like that could very real Like realistically ruin every Almost like employment opportunity you have For the future that has been set out for you And like she is so like in That track in her life like set Onto those rails that like When she gets to that point where, like, everything, her sister, the principal, like, the students, like, her grades, like, the school, society, everything is just, like, piling on top of her and never, like, giving her room to try to be anything that she wants to be and express herself in any way. And she's always having to give herself to everything that, like, when that cracks and she's like, fuck this shit, it is so powerful, it's so impactful, it is, like, it's... You know, I love the really aggressive Persona Awakenings in this game. But, like, this is the best one of those to me. of Where it's just like... Because it's been building up for so long. And you're just like, yes. Like, just like let it go rip the mask off and like blood spews we out we didn't
0: talk about that, that that's how they do it is you literally have to rip th- when I saw that for the
1: first time with yeah. the protagonist I like
0: gasped because that is intense
1: yes yeah, so you like the mask Like that, their like iconic mask that like sort of puts their costume together is grafted literally onto the skin of their face and they have to rip it off with like blood spewing out and then their persona bursts forth and I love all the persona voices are really good of them like talking really? about like oh what have you been doing all this time now you must finally awaken to your just and set me free and just like boom and then she's on a fucking motorcycle and she's like this dope biker lady who also knows aikido so she can just beat the shit out of people it's so good it's so good and then you
0: know from there she throws herself into the mission of the phantom thieves with more gusto than pretty much anyone else yeah, on the
1: yeah and she becomes like the strategist because she is like it's one of the things i love about her character is that because she was like the number one student at school like she is actually wicked fucking smart right and so there's something really fun about that is because it also puts into context how your group up till now like morgana has gotten by a lot on like instinct and sort of knowing some stuff about the supernatural world but you haven't had someone that has like the largest sort of like perspective to like push people forward and like strategize things and so you get her and all of a sudden your group and it's one of the things i love about this game is that for each subsequent character introduction you keep on getting the sense of like how much more powerful the phantom thieves are now that you have makoto on your team who knows her shit
0: and knowing that we're headed we talked a lot last week about the framing device knowing we are headed to that point where the phantom thieves are going to get so big an entire swat team is going to come take you down you see every step on that path you know and it feels meaningful no if makoto had a velvet room it would definitely be a prison Also like the protagonist, you know? And, uh, yeah, it's just so satisfying. I think the whole relationship with her sister, Sai, who you also start getting to know better on the, uh, like, future side of this game. Yeah, because this is around where her social link opens up. Someone explain the chronology of that to me, that you can have a social link in the future that will help you in the past. I don't get that.
1: Dude, it's Philemon. It's, like, it's the grand web of time and of life. You are nothing, and yet you hold infinite potential. Like, what is a little bit of, like... Arcana bursting through like the time portal How are you to like Put your nose up at you Like you go to sleep and wake up in a like psychological prison of your own mind attended by a man in a large nose And two eye patched Cyclopean twins that, That also are like kind of dominatrixes Yes,
0: it's, it's
1: weird. The little it's bit weird. of time fuckery is totally fine by me. <laughs> it just it is funny, you know? Yeah. It's like,
0: it's such a, it's such a weird... Because <laughs> I was wondering, when do we get... Because the Judgment Social link comes in at different places, but yeah. I was like, are they going to do something with Sai? And then it starts, it's like, that's hilarious. But yeah. no, I mean, you start seeing some of Makoto's home life with Sai, and while well, I'm sure we will learn a lot more about Sai and yeah. why she is the way she is... She's a real jerk to poor Makoto. Yeah. Because Makoto has done nothing but be a good little sister. Yeah. And, you know, she straight up calls her useless. And I find that a really powerful moment. And that is, you know, that's the direct um, thing that pushes Makoto to go join the Phantom Thieves, is what her sister says to her. Yeah. But it's also like, that is what people who go into that kind of life get is yeah. you're told to do all these things and do all this. And at the end of the day, You're just kind of useless to everybody. And that's what society kind of gives back to you. And I think anyone who has been on that kind of track has that kind of awakening. Or you go crazy and become a politician. But other than that, which is where Makoto would sadly probably go otherwise. And no, she has that awakening. And you're right. It is just so satisfying. And it drives that third arc so hard. And I also always want Makoto on my team and almost never take her off
1: yeah no because also i like her ability set is nice because she's a like nice middle yep. character that like you know the fray spells are nice they, they do some good like they have some like kind of extra abilities against enemies that have some uh like status effects on them that's pretty nice and then she has a healing spell and she has a melee attack yep. and she has energy shower or whatever once she has that like, cures certain uh status ailments she's just like a really nice all-around character she's really powerful it's also like it highlights because this is at the part where you have uh, like a number of different uh, characters that are like way more like two more than you can have at your party at one time yeah. and it's one thing that's like one of the biggest most significant improvements that Persona 5 has is just that your teammates level up as you like go through even if they are not in the battle with you. And the game is very clearly specifically designed around the concept of that you are switching people in and out. Because even a lot of the dungeons have different sort of phases of you encountering different enemies depending on where you are in the dungeon. And so for some dungeons at the beginning you maybe are rolling with a crew of like Yuji, Yusuke, and Morgana. And by the end you're rolling with like Yuji uh on An and makoto because like oh now i'm fighting these different sort of configurations of enemies and these characters are more useful it's also very useful in the way sp goes down
0: yeah you can say all right on is out of sp let's get morgana in here or the opposite or yeah. something yeah yeah that's yeah. actually the only way i was able to get through uh futaba's palace because that one is yeah normal. futaba's palace is
1: pretty brutal like i was able to get it through it pretty easily this time because i knew it was coming but the first time yeah. like that one is it gets you Yeah, and I had, like, no SP items, so... But I figured it out. Um,
0: I I have an SP patch as my accessory. Yeah. I'm doing pretty good. But, yeah, no, I mean, Makuta's a great character. Um, Overall, of the four palaces I've played, Kanashiro's is my least favorite. Huh. But it's... I still really like it.
1: Like, that's funny, because for me, it's actually one of my favorite ones in the game. I really like the puzzles in his... In particular... I like like my favorite section of any of the palaces I think is the lock room at the end it's where you have to do the algebra and like move like and it's just like that moment where you're going down the elevator and you see it and it's like that's fucking awesome like the end of this dungeon is a gigantic lock like that's such a good idea of like a visualization and you like working your way through it in those rooms and with the algebra thing yeah yeah, with the algebra and then by the time you get to the end it's like okay flex is like okay p equals i equals two and like l is like like because at first like they're very simple and by the time you get to the end like you're like looking at it's like okay yeah because you just go through your inventory and like try to keep in mind every single one of these it's, no, and let me be clear. It's phenomenal. Yeah. I just found the
0: other three, personally, even more phenomenal. They're all phenomenal. Yeah. Like, it's amazing that I'm halfway through the game, four major palaces. They're all home runs. Yeah,
1: they're all really good.
0: Yeah, and I think some of it is just, like, um, aesthetically, I found the bank slightly less interesting, but still beautiful, and I love the way they do it, and the lock room, once you get there, is so great. Yeah, I like it's, all the
1: stuff with, like, the security cameras. Yes. Like, I think there's something fun about like you like you make your way through something and then you break it and so like all the security cameras break so if you ever go through that hallway again you're fine. Yeah. There's something about like that puzzle design of the dungeon that I really love. And it also like you know now that we're you know at four of these that we can talk about on the podcast like it, if you can highlight now how different every single palace feels from one another. Oh, yeah. like they are all structured so differently. We're like some of them You know, like, one of the things that's really cool about the bank one is that there are only, like, four safe rooms in that whole dungeon because of how circular the design is. It keeps on racketing back in on itself. You keep on, in almost like a Dark Souls-esque manner, you keep on finding new shortcuts that lead back to an older safe room that then you can save in to go back out.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's really cool. No, it's really cool. I love that one. Um, You know, there's something that, like, the museum just kind of Tickled the art like yeah. the, the art major in me, and sure, I love that. Yeah. But you know, they're all they're all great. The bank one is great, and I, I love the way Kanshiro ends, where you know you, you 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 break him, you steal his heart, and everything, and then you know he's gone to the police, and you're kind of waiting to hear. I like I actually like that because you know he's off confessing. Yeah, you just haven't seen it yet, um, but I love all that. I mean. Yeah, that palace is great. I really love the music. In, I love the music in all the palaces. That yeah. one has a really good song.
1: It's one of the, the biggest strengths of the Persona 5 soundtrack over the other Persona soundtracks is I think across the board it tends to have better dungeon music. Yes. Like a lot of the dungeon music is really good. And yeah, in particular the, the bank one, particularly the first bank theme is really
0: catchy. It's so great. Like my favorite dungeon palace music so far is uh, Futaba's Palace, the, yeah, the pyramid. Really but they're all like the, 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 the castle, the museum, the bank. The pyramid, all four of them, just yeah. out, outstanding, outstanding. Like there's, there's no piece of music in this game that is not bad in a thousand. It's yeah, so good. But yeah, anything else to say about that story arc? Uh, no, I think that yeah, that's... yeah, and I love you know once Makoto joins, it's just such a joy, and then it's like the the game very easily could I think coast on how well it's doing at that basic format, and could go with another sh- shitty adult for you to target yeah. and all that stuff, but instead. You get to that flash forward with Sai, and she's like, Yeah, how did you take down like an international hacker ring? And it's like, Yeah. Where the fuck are they going with this? How did you take down Anonymous, basically, is what she says. Yes. And so then you get into the most convoluted and so far maybe most satisfying stretch of the Persona 5 story, which is the story of. Futaba the sad little girl. Yeah, the hikikomori. Yeah. I mean she's not actually younger than you, but she seems like No, she's she's younger. She's one year younger than you. Well, okay. She doesn't
1: go to school, so it's hard to tell, but yeah, yeah, she is. I didn't
0: mean she was like Nanako. I didn't Oh no, 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 she's not a five year old. Yeah, no. She's she's younger relatively. You are technically her senpai. Yes. But anyway, um, man, what a story. That I actually just wrapped this up today because mm-hmm. I did the palace really early and I had a lot to play through. Yeah. Uh, and I'm still in that week where everyone is going to hang out with Futaba,
1: which is yeah, so awesome. Yeah, so you story. haven't really been introduced to her fully yet because like, you haven't, like, you've saved her and everything, but like, you still don't know how she's going to fit into the team yet not fully i mean i know yeah. she's gonna be your support well character. yeah but i mean so like in terms yeah. of like the narrative dynamics because right. her character is so reserved yep. still that like yeah but i'm getting a
0: sense of it and i think she's a great character but either way the story around that i mean it's so convoluted where basically medjet the 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 hacker organization decides they have it out for the phantom thieves yeah. and at a certain point they are going to basically bring down japan economically through hacking yeah. And you have to defeat them and it's like well fuck And at the same time a person A mysterious person named Alibaba starts texting The protagonist yeah. and says I know You're the Phantom Thieves they're, they're Listening in on you and it's like I want you to steal Someone's heart basically yeah.
1: That's such a great moment that like time you're just like randomly In class and you think like oh Yuji Texted me or something and then it's like this weird Face on your screen you're like I'm Alibaba and you're like what the fuck It's almost like they did everything else up to That point of the texting in
0: class for that moment Yeah because it's such a great moment, and eventually you find out Alibaba wants you to steal the heart of a girl named Futaba Sakura. Yeah, and don't know why, but if you do that, Alibaba will help you take down Medjet. You realize Sakura is the name of your guardian,
1: yeah, Shojiro,
0: and you're like, okay, and you go ask him, and eventually you realize Futaba is his daughter who stays in his room and might be abused in some way. Yeah, even though Shojiro at this point seems like a pretty decent dude, so you're like, that doesn't seem right. And throughout all of this, uh, you see these little cutaways to the person you will eventually find out is Futaba. And then the team realizes wait, Alibaba must be Futaba. Otherwise, this whole. Because they also, Futaba, or Alibaba gives you a calling card to give to Futaba. Yeah. And like, they must be the same person. And you're trying to think, okay, why would someone want to have their heart stolen? And I think it is such a brilliant twist on the Persona 5 like you know, uh, framework up to this yeah. point of, like, you're not stealing a bad person's heart. You're not stealing someone's heart unknowingly. Someone is in such pain that they are asked... They have figured out what you guys do and are asking you to steal their heart. And then the story that extends from there of what happened to Futaba and her mother and where Shojiro fits into all of this... Out-fucking-standing.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of my favorite parts of the whole game, for sure. Like, yeah. it's it's... Like, because... And I always am so amazed whenever, like, Persona games are able to do that in the middle where it's, like... All of a sudden, here's this, like, huge twist on the structure of, like, the characters you've met up to this point... Or, like, how you're playing the game. And here, like, this is one of the most significant ones of, like... You... Like, it, and it's an interesting sort of dynamic because you're so used to the sort of, like, building rogues gallery... And, like, that... Of, like, going in and, like, finding some asshole and, and changing their heart. And you think at the beginning of this section that that's probably what it's going to be because it's like you don't know who is running this hacker ring but you know that oh that's probably how it's going to culminate you're going to find some dude who thinks he's like you know on top of the world and is all high and mighty because he has these hacking skills and that like they like all the world is their oyster because they have these abilities and then you'll like find out who they are and change their heart and all that stuff and instead you find out no like this is this girl who's sad and alone and afraid that also represents this other kind of like with uh, all the other characters and like archetype that exists in Japanese society and in Japanese media of like a certain kind of person that is harmed by society in specific ways and this is like the shut-in or in in Japanese you call it hikikomori which is a whole phenomenon that's been going on for decades in Japan of people literally like locking themselves up in the room and like cutting themselves off from society entirely and so she is that and like you she wants you to go fix her and having to do that and like in uncovering that like through her dungeon of like what her past is, what she thinks her past is and what maybe actually happened. And like figuring all that out is such a fascinating part of the story. And you know, it would be such a shame if the game didn't
0: do something like this at some point. Because yeah. as I said last week, what these palaces are, are these like journeys of empathy. Yeah. Of like you getting to a point where you kind of see this villain, whoever they are, face to face for what they truly are. And sometimes that is disgusting, sometimes it's pathetic... In this case, what it is, is you're going on a journey of empathy for someone who is good and who truly needs it, you know? And it's not, you know, there is a boss battle at the end, and it's actually a really cool one in this case. But that's not what's important. It's about piecing together kind of the mystery of this girl and what can we do to help her. And that's what matters. And I think it's just, it's a real standout of the game so far for me, is this whole story and the palace encompassing it. Because the Pyramid Palace in the middle of the desert... That is my favorite palace. Yeah, it's really the good. The music is amazing. It gives me a really heavy Sonic Adventure 2 vibe. Yeah. And I say that in the best way possible because those desert areas in Sonic Adventure 2 are really evocative, I think. Yeah. And, like, musically, aesthetically, it reminds me of that. I think the palace is so creative in that, really, it's just one corridor you're going up. The whole the thing's got just a couple of save rooms. Yeah. It really That's only cool. needs, like, the one, and but they give you extras just for fun. Yeah. And um, you just have to get up there, but you have to keep going off these side corridors to basically redirect these
1: lights... And it is maybe the longest continuous like light mirror puzzle in video game history. Yes. Like it's not that complicated a one, but it is like technically that is what it is and it's like but it's like 6 hours long.
0: Yeah, it is. And like it took I did it all in one day in the game, but it yeah. took me a couple of sittings in real life to play through it. But man, I I dug it. It's so great. And like even the intro stuff where you like you have to go into the little town. I love
1: that. That's It's great. such it's just a smart thing of again like it's like you have this very specific formula in mind of you go into the palace like you probably get kicked out at first and then you find like the secret route to go in and all that stuff. And here having to go off to this whole other town like off to the side and do this weird little thing of like trapping that dude in the, the like alleyway or whatever is so cool of just like taking something you were expecting of the process of entering a dungeon and kind of turning it out his head a little bit. And just, like, the idea of there being this whole other... Like, it's tiny, but there's a whole other area of the palace that's, like, completely disconnected from yep. the main area. It's just a cool sort of, like, psychological element because you've never had that. You know, like, Persona 4 never had that. You never had something in Persona 4 where you, like, went to the dungeon, but, like, oh, wait, no, like, actually, like, before you can go into Naoto's secret base, like, there's a missile silo over there that you have to go <laughs> and infiltrate to get, like, the key code or something. You have to go play Metal Gear Solid. Yeah, exactly. Like... It's just a cool concept that you normally... It actually... Because partly because I played through Ocarina of Time so recently. But it kind of reminds me of... In Ocarina of Time, there are a lot of dungeons like the Water Temple, for instance. instance where you have to go through the ice cavern first yeah. to get the ice boots. To then go to the, the Water Temple. And it's kind of got that aspect of like... It's not just one contained area. It's like this small journey you have to take.
0: It's something actually... Uh, the the, Zelda, the classic Zelda games do really well is all those like different paths you have to take to get to the actual dungeon. is yeah. often a puzzle room in and of itself. Yeah, you get that here with this, and it's great. And then the overall just aesthetic of the desert and tying into both her mental state but the Alibaba Ali name and stuff yeah. like that. And all of that. It's, it's, just, it's such an interesting thing. You get that great animated cutscene of them driving through the desert, yeah. which was in all the trailers. Which, by the way, I think we're... Now officially past the point where any footage is in the trailers because I think the trailers just go all, up to the desert almost. stuff. Almost like okay. like
1: any nothing that's like really overt main story stuff. Like there are yeah. some images I can think of like one in particular from the trailers that we have. There's seen. that one character who yeah has yeah. An image. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah.
0: but other than that, like I know the desert. I was waiting for a desert palace because that was in all the trailers. Yeah. Um, but anyway, no. Uh, yeah, I loved this palace and the story progression through the palace is so. Delicate and precise in its pacing Where basically the story you learn is Her mother seemingly committed suicide Futaba has had to take the brunt of this Because there was a forged suicide note That these dick dick adults basically yeah. made And tried to make Futaba... The, the, the sheep for this you know, Yeah
1: like sort of like Pushed it on her To like give the story Plausibility that like Baba right. was Such a bothersome child Because Wakaba Her mother was a single mother And like had all these Pressures as being a researcher And the story they Like they constructed To sort of make The suicide plausible Was that all that Pressure of her life Got to her And so she jumped In front of a car To just end it and, you know, they, they sort of like psychologically abused Futaba to sort of convince her yeah. that that was true to make the story sound convincing overall.
0: And so Futaba is basically this, you know, genius, this really smart person who clearly feels very deeply about yeah. these things and has become this shut-in since then and your heart just breaks every step of the way and i think this palace even more than that and all of them do a great job at it but this palace in terms of you know visually literalizing and actualizing what's going on with the yeah. character this palace does it best especially because of those puzzle murals you have to yeah do. where
1: you're like literally reconstructing her memory through yes. like resorting these like sliding puzzles
0: but also turning her memory into like these you know hieroglyphs yeah. where like it's not really clear what happened And they are like this archaeological thing because her mind is pretty broken at this point. And again, this is Persona 5 does not pull its punches. This girl has been deeply abused but not in the typical way we think of that
1: yeah and not like not in an obvious way but like it's yeah. clearly his like and not by the people who love her either yeah. you know
0: like that's the other thing is what happens to shojiro over the course of this story and how that character is is revealed like yeah because it's not just that he's not a dick he's a really good guy yeah and he's tried so hard and you realize why he is the way he is with the protagonist at the beginning both because i think he has high standards but also because it's gonna be. Hard. I think he's doing this for genuinely altruistic reasons. Yeah, but he can't. He can't open himself up like that. Yeah, and just seeing like what he's been through. Of he really has tried to be the best person he can be, the best father he can be in this scenario, and to have to live through that. I mean, you're basically healing two people at once with this. Yeah, yeah. And there's a moment at the end where, all right, you, you know, you you do the palace and all that, and then you wait, like, three weeks for Futaba to sleep. Yeah. And that I'll admit, funny. that is one of the... It's funny, but it's also, like, that's one of the ones where it's like, I would think there'd be a little more urgency about figuring this out, but whatever.
1: Yeah, but no, I mean, Sojino you know, tells you, this happens every yeah. once in a while, which is a really funny it scene is. where everyone's like, we're going to have to tell him, it's like, ah, oh, she's doing this
0: again, huh? But, uh... The the first time Persona Five brought a tear to my eye yeah. was at the end of that win. It's it's so simple, but all that happens is you are sitting having a coffee with Shoujiro and Futaba walks in. Yeah. And she doesn't walk in dramatically. It's not like anything big happens. She just walks in and sits down to have a coffee. And the fact that she is able to do that and like the look on Shojiro's face and realizing what this means to him and what this, you know, means to her, even though she's not gonna admit it right now. Yeah. That is an immensely powerful moment. Yeah, yeah. Just the fact that she can get out of her room and come to her, you know, dad's coffee shop, it means the world. Like, you you feel like what the Phantom Thieves did in that moment more powerfully than kind of anything else in the game.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's when, like, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I talked about when I I was walking around outside and, like, listening to the Persona 5 soundtrack and, like, a song hit me really hard in a way I wasn't expecting. I had to, like, sit down for a second. I was listening to alley cat which is a song it's it's a song that plays in a couple different places in the game but it very heavily is featured in this section that's a, a sad sort of like electric piano song that is that for me because it's like really prominent this section and a couple other places with Sojido and Futaba in particular it like really emblemizes like their relationship and like and then also like you'll see like coming forward it's this weird family Thing that is being made between Sojido Futaba and the protagonist character because they're all yeah. kind of living together and it's like this bizarre family unit but it is that like moment of where, you know, slowly over the course of the game, at, up to this point, you are definitely getting the sense of, like, oh, Sojiro is definitely, he's better, uh, he's a better guy than you think at the beginning of the game. So at the beginning of the game, he seems like a total dick, you think he's just taking you in for money or something, and he seems like he's probably some womanizer or something on the side, and at this point you realize, of oh, the person he's talking to on the phone all the time, that you think he's, like, talking to, like, all these different women or something, that's Futaba, and, like, he's talking about, like, going and getting her food and stuff. And it's, like, that moment of realization of, like, oh, this guy I thought was kind of a dick, or like, or, like, maybe, like, a complete asshole, but at least probably kind of a dick, and, like, a really cold person that I've been slowly warming up to over the course of, like... It's one of the things about the Social Link design of the game that I think is smart and how they, like... You have to really work to advance Sojito's Social Link, because he does not... Still haven't have gone be able, beyond, like, level 3, because yeah, it's hard. Yeah, like, it's hard. Like, you have to really commit to spending time with him if you want to get to know him better because that's the kind of guy he is and it's only until this moment where you like have this opportunity through Futaba to really deepen that relationship and here's like one thing that like because you're past this point you're not going to know this but in Sojiro's social link once you get to rank four you cannot advance him past that point until you clear Futaba's palace because oh then I
0: haven't been wasting time yeah not really
1: yeah (laughs) so it's like one of the things that's digital about that design and then past that point it actually gets easier because, like, yeah. that's how his social link is designed, is you have this opportunity to now get to know him and become a kind of this weird family with him. It's, like, that process and that this, like, inflection point of this story is so powerful. And, like, it's, like, when I thought about... When, like, the song just sort of, like, brought all these memories of, like, the scene here where he tears up after she walks into the cafe for, like, just half a second. Like, it's so powerful because you know this dude is such a hard-ass about all this stuff. Like, he he's... Puts on such a like tough exterior. But deep down like this is a guy who took in this woman who was his co-worker that he probably was in love with in some way. But never had a relationship with. And he took in her daughter into his home. Who was like her psychologically traumatized daughter who can't even like basically go out of her room and still function in society. And he took her in and took care of her. And has been trying to find some way to take care of her. And he has a line in this Game where he basically says, I think the translation is basically like, "How do you fix psychological wounds?" Right. But like in in Japanese, it's like, "Like how do wounds of the heart heal?" And like he like tears up when he says that. It's like such a hard thing to take. You know, the, I gave the answer. I don't know. Yeah, me too. Because I don't know how there is no answer
0: to that, right? Yeah. I mean, this game. This is when yeah. I realized if I can identify one unifying theme of Persona Five. You know, like if the unifying theme of Persona yeah. 3 is death. The unifying theme of Persona 5 to me, and the word I keep coming back to, is empathy. It is mm-hmm. a game about what disconnects people is, your, is our inability to not just be able to understand each other, but to want to take that step. And, of course, it's set in Tokyo because it's even harder when you're in a setting like that, that there's so many people, and that just distances all of us from them more and more and more. You know, and the world... Would be better on every level if people took the time to look past whatever that exterior is and think about someone deeper down. And that is the role the Phantom Thieves are really taking in the world is yeah. through taking their heart kind of forcing these acts of empathy. But also realizing, like, if we want to make the world the way we want to see it, then we have to live that through people. We have to be able to look at a Shodaro who was kind of a dick to us at first and realize well why was he that way what made him that way what happened here and realize this is this is a good dude yeah you know miss kawakami she seems mean to you at first but you do her socially and it's like no she's a good woman who wants to do good in the world who's a great teacher yeah who's a great teacher and like all these steps like every story in the game kind of keeps coming back to those points even when people are sort of irredeemable that doesn't mean empathy isn't possible yeah and i think it's it's a really powerful thing and it's it's another one of those things where Persona kind of reaches for some of the biggest questions you can ask as a human, and then explores them in this beautiful, beautiful way. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Persona 5, man. Persona 5. It's it's a hell Persona of a game. It's
0: fucking game. Yeah. Uh, so, who knows how much we will be able to play for next week. Um, yeah, I'm
1: hoping we can keep a pace in, like, me... I don't... It's, it's hard to know if we'll be able to make through two solid dungeons, but that would be a good chunk, yeah. like, knowing where the game goes although it's going to be interesting seeing how we start splitting up the discussions from this point because you know we're getting closer to getting all the party members and if you've played another any other persona game you know once you have all the party members the story starts moving into a new sort of phase so right i mean i will have more time to play
0: this game this week than i have last like last week i just didn't even have a lot of time to play it but we'll uh we'll
1: see yeah it's so great i'm so happy to be talking about it yeah this game is is something else it's yeah. really remarkable Yeah I mean, This was one of my This is I, I, I say this is one of my Favorite stretches of the game I mean the truth is Like all the, Every part of the game Is my favorite stretch of the game It's a remarkably consistent game Yeah and, But it is something where I It's All the Persona games are like this But I think Persona 5 Even more than the others It does Each step Each sort of like Episode Each phase Feels so distinct And powerful And unique from one another To the point of like You know you have The Fataba section That is also The summer section of the game That feels so different From everything else and that's, I think, why I, like, every time we're talking about this, I about like, oh, yeah, this is, like, one of my favorite parts of the game. I think I've said that about every single thing we've talked about so far no, because you're, you're, they are all my favorite part because they are all different enough to stand on their own.
0: But you're right. I mean, I, I, my, I've played half the game and it does feel to me like I've watched 50 episodes of anime or something yeah. that had, you know, distinct arcs, you know, but very well, like, but better done than most anime, frankly, is able to do yeah. that with long-running stories. So, goddamn, this game is so great. And uh, just every time I look up from our timeline here and I see your Persona Shrine and I'm reminded of just how great the art is, I just want to go play more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we will play more. We will come back next week. We will talk about Persona 5. We will talk about Doctor Who Season 10, Episode 2. We will talk about other
1: things. Hopefully there's less news. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe there will be 500 movie trailers. Hopefully Trump hasn't nuked anybody. Well, let's not keep our hopes too high, Jonathan. Let's (laughs) keep their expectations realistic. Someone needs to change that dude's heart. Yeah, well, we'll get there eventually, but first I think we all need to go to the beach.